0: Ladies and gentlemen, at any moment during the next 30 minutes, someone might receive $1,000 cash. At any moment during the next 30 minutes. Really? You bet your life. Here's the show that has the $1,000 bell that rings at the mention of the mystery word. And here's the star If You Bet Your Life, one of the greatest stars of all time. Jupiter. A man known to millions everywhere. Howard Hughes. Someone Someone who's worked up from the bottom of the ladder. Oh, Margaret Truman. Yeah. The one and only...
1: It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. This is episode 43. I take it out once in a while. My name is Bob Gasell, and I'll be your host today. Joining me as always are Matthew Conium, founder of the Marx Brothers Council, and author of several books, including The Annotated Marx Brothers and that's me, Groucho, as well as the soon to be published annotated Milli Vanilli. Have I got that right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The annotated happened in Costello. Oh, uh, okay. You foolish boy. And when
1: will that be coming? Do we
2: know? God, God knows. Um, maybe September, maybe the year after it's McFarland. <laughs> okay. Spanky.
1: Um, <laughs> Also joining us is Noah Diamond, who brought Alsatias back to the New York stage after almost a century, and who details the experience and the show's history in his great book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of Alsatias. He has also hosted several Marx Brothers-related events, both online and in person. And if my sources are correct, is preparing a stage production of Skidoo? (laughs)
3: that's right yes that's my passion project Uh, i'm happy to see you guys i'm I'm, uh, here for the jay leno podcast
1: (laughs) anyhow while we sit here (laughs) in our bubble discussing the marx brothers films month in and month out the fact is that groucho enjoyed his greatest popularity and greatest personal satisfaction as host of you bet your life which he did for 14 years unlike his brothers groucho not only was determined to make it as a solo performer but to do so outside the iconic character that he no longer wanted to inhabit. After the team's first farewell film, 1941's The Big Store, Groucho spent the next several years looking for his second act. The solo film offers that he relished did not come fine in, at least ones that interested him, and his attempts at finding a radio show failed to find an audience. He was everyone's favorite guest star, but had yet to find the perfect vehicle for himself. That is, until he met a producer by the name of John Goodell, who found a way to harness Groucho's talents in a unique way, and who produced a groundbreaking show with many innovations that became commonplace. Now, to be totally honest, none of us here are real experts on You Bet Your Life. Those people were either unavailable or just didn't want to talk to us. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, so to fill that void, we are proud to welcome someone who has met John Goodell. And head writer Bernie Smith Here he is, the recently retired And recently sober Jay (laughs) Hapkins
4: Oh my goodness Do you know the the meaning of the word Libel? (laughs) But I'm happy to fill any void you say You know, keep it clean though Uh, Just say the secret void
1: no, I mean maybe you might not. I don't know. what You say you're not an expert. You certainly know more about the show and its history than we do, and you come at the right price, so here you are.
4: <laughs> well, I'll accept the latter explanation, yes.
1: <laughs> so as fans of the podcast know, a while back we presented a vintage interview Jay did with John Goodell, and in that same vein, we have yet another special treat from Jay that we'll get to later on. But in the meantime, I'm going to throw it over to Matthew, who's going to give us a little background on the genesis of You Bet Your Life.
2: Yes. Well I mean you you covered it fairly ably yourself there. Basically, as we know, Groucho spent most of the forties trying and failing to be a radio star. Um he had the Pabs Blue Ribbon hour, um, which didn't sort of light any major fires, and apart from that, it was basically just lots and lots of guest star stints mm-hmm. um on other people's shows. Um which in the main, I think, um involved him. Kind of cutting loose and disrupting the show, uh, ad libbing to whatever extent. Um, so really, I think that was, that was kind of his, his shtick on radio was, was to come on and, and, uh, pull the wheels off. Um, but apparently, um, it was one, uh, occasion in particular, John Goodell was present, uh, and it was an all-star bill and it was a sketch with, uh, Groud Show and Bob Hope. And the, the, the story is kind of, the legend has grown in the telling. Supposedly, um, they, they abandoned their scripts and just went into a flurry of ad-libbing. Um, as I, as I believe we're about to find out, it, it wasn't quite like that. But anyway, Goodell was there. He was very impressed and he pitched the idea of the uh, game show to Groucho. Groucho didn't want to do a game show. He thought they were pretty much the, the lowest rung of, of entertainment. Uh, he did it very reluctantly. He didn't do it. I don't think with any great expectation of it being a success. It wasn't an overnight success. Um, but very quickly it did become a huge hit listening to it now and watching it now. It seems very much within the parameters, I think, of of 1950s light entertainment. Mm. But I, I guess at the time it was just that little bit friskier, a little bit fresher, a little bit more irreverent. Um, and it finally rang the bell for him and and ended his his radio drought.
1: You know, that uh, that story is basically how the legend goes. Though so, reading uh, Groucho's account of these events in The Secret Word is Groucho, which he co-wrote with, who was it? Hector Arcee? Yeah. Groucho does not really seem to balk at the initial suggestion of a game show. He's like, why not? Sure. Mm. Everything else has failed. Why not try this? He, that's a surprise, you know, isn't so. it? Yeah. Anyhow, you, I think, Go ahead.
2: I think that's because Goodell was involved with the book and Bernie Smith was involved with the book. Mm. Uh, and, and he's, of course, he's looking back on it being his greatest personal success. So I, I think he's kind of mellowed. Um, you know, if you look at his letters to Miriam around the time, mm. um, he, he's very, very scathing of doing it.
1: Okay, now, before we dive into the show proper, I'm going to play for you the inspiration for the series, and that's the skit that Groucho did with uh, Bob Hope, which supposedly inspired John Goodell to uh, approach Groucho and offer him the idea for a series. So we're going to listen to the whole thing here. It's about 10 minutes long, so sit back and enjoy.
0: Now we're back at the radio station on the desert. Bob has just arrived from Hollywood, where he's been trying to line up talent for the Walgreens show.
5: Well, at least I had Cass Daly and Dennis Day coming down to the station, but I wasn't too sure that they'd appear on the show. If they didn't, I'd have to return the $50,000 that Walgreens had given me. Of course, I wouldn't mind that. (laughs) I thought this was just a story. It's a fantasy, isn't it? But right now, I was rolling in money, rolling in money. And after I was through rolling in, I'd pick it up and put it back in the safe. I was trying to think of a plan to get Cass and Dennis on the show when I heard a knock at the office
0: door. Come in. How do you do? Are you the lady of the house or do I have smog on my glasses? (laughs) After looking you over carefully, I hope it is smog. Well, Groucho Marx!
5: Croucho, what are you doing out here in the desert?
0: (laughs) Desert? I've been sitting in the dressing room for 40 minutes. (laughs) Some desert, all right, you know. Sewing mink coats. (laughs) Here's a beauty. Only $40. Mink coats for $40? How can you sell them so cheap? Well, I have no overhead. I don't advertise. I don't pay rent. And I steal the coats.
5: (laughs) Croucho! I know you don't steal those coats. Where do you get them?
0: Very simple. I trap them with my big musical trap. <laughs> I walk out into the woods and play seductive music on my zither. The little animals hear the music do a strip tease and take off their furs.
6: <laughs>
0: Did I tell you about the two vultures that were plucking in?
6: <laughs>
0: well, it's hard to do without two. <laughs>
5: You can start working on the record now, fellas.
6: <laughs> it's a good oh, thing they got an extra
0: supply of wax would, out there. <laughs> would we be fated? Oh!
6: <laughs> this will be the
0: biggest crap game in history. Yeah.
6: <laughs> Look, Groucho... I think it's
0: your time.
5: Yeah, I think so. <laughs>
6: well, sure, you want to quit right now, I sure huh? never... I'm never going
5: to give you, you to another now. feed, you know. I'm never going to give you another feed. You know, we have a hookup with Lee oh, Francis, know, you man.
6: know. <laughs> Look,
5: Groucho,
0: <laughs> I don't need a mink coat. I'm an etching man myself. Wait till I catch up on you over here. <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, you wear one of my mink coats, you'll be etching. (laughs) Well, we can cut that, too, I guess. Well, I I suppose the girls would find the coat too warm out here in the desert. Well,
5: I always find the girls are warmest when you promise them the coat. Once they get it on, they
0: cool off. Not these coats, Bob. These coats are all hot. Hope this is some radio... (laughs) Okay, I'll do as much for you, Bob <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you This is some radio station here What, what? What, what, what? What, what? Now look, you're not going to suck me into an Abbott and Costello <laughs> routine With me playing Abbott
6: yeah.
0: <laughs> You get your own, Chico But why have you got this place hidden out in the desert? I started out last night and trying to find It was like looking for a needle in a haystack Well, where did you stay last night? In a haystack was it comfortable? No, I kept sitting on the needle
6: <laughs> But
0: I found out one thing A needle always points north
6: <laughs> Say, Groucho, excuse
0: the astronomer
5: in the orchestra huh?
6: <laughs>
5: Groucho, excuse I wish me I there was even... a musician in
6: there huh?
5: <laughs> We ought to work this way They're much better here
6: <laughs> Well, don't
0: forget They're getting paid we're stealing.
5: not I'm
6: getting paid. <laughs> Groucho,
5: excuse me a minute. I have to make an announcement on the air. Step into the studio with me, will you? All right.
0: You notice everybody in radio wears wooden shoes?
6: <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, well, here we are. Just pull up a kilocycle and sit down, Groucho. I'll be right with you. At the next musical note, will someone please call and give us the correct time? <laughs> Those Ingersoll people are really on their toes, aren't they?
6: <laughs>
5: we interrupt today's musical program for a dispatch from Cairo, Egypt. But none of us understand Egyptian, so back to the program.
6: <laughs>
5: well, that takes care of that, Groucho. Is that all you do? Is that all I do? That's
6: a nice line, that is, Sammy.
5: Why, why make announcements, give the time, do the bookkeeping And on top of that, I'm a disc jockey
0: Disc jockey? My brother Chico used to be a disc jockey He spun the records on his head On his head as possible <laughs> You know, after every thousand records he had to have his head sharpened <laughs> Do you unwind or is there
5: some place I can pull the plug out on you? <laughs> Let's keep Crosby out of this, huh?
6: <laughs> Raucho,
5: I'm just trying to prove to you That I have too much to do around here What I need is a business manager I'm carrying too heavy a load
0: You think you're carrying a load? You should have mm-hmm. seen me last night
6: <laughs>
0: Okay, I'll take the job Where's the safe? And who's got the combination? Raucho, get and away no from that you're safe you wearing it, huh? <laughs> Get you away from that safe Oh, I just wanted to see When you open the door If a little light goes on You're thinking of an icebox Oh, no, I'm not I'm thinking of Lana Turner and that's hardly an icebox
5: Pardon me a moment, Groucho. I have to make an announcement.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Gillette Blueblades bring you another important
5: championship fight. Remember, look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. And there's the bell. Well? Well, Groucho, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, Gillette Blue Blades bring you another important championship fight. Remember, look sharp, feel sharp, be sharp. And there's the bell. It's
0: a nice pot I've got here, huh?
6: <laughs>
0: now, when you get this line now, hey, Hope, what is this? Return match <laughs> My script was written by intermission <laughs> I hope if you ask me that fight was framed Now listen, Bob, before I go into this dee, We'll I have to have an understanding You see, I'm in the habit of always picking up A little something on the side Fine, if you do, see if she's got a friend for me <laughs> I'm talking about money Don't worry, you'll get paid I know, but name a figure Rita Hayward.
6: <laughs>
0: I mean a round figure Crosby Crosby <laughs> Now, just step
5: out in here, Groucho. This will be your office. Now, anything you want.
0: Yes, now, the first thing I want to do is put the station in better shape. The place looks terrible, Bob. You ought to get some real Venetian blinds.
5: Real Venetian blinds?
0: Yes, it doesn't look businesslike, hanging up your long underwear and opening and closing the flap. (laughs) Well, maybe I could put in a zipper. Now, look, Groucho,
6: I think... Never never
0: mind what you think. Just keep your flap shut. Yeah. (laughs) And furthermore, I Hope, the next thing that Groucho, I... you don't let me get a word in edgewise. I like a word that comes in edgewise. Either it comes in
5: straight or not at all.
6: <laughs> well,
5: Groucho, you've got to be sensible. I'm putting on a show for Walgreen tonight.
0: Is that so? Well, tell me, uh, how much are they paying you? Oh, well,
5: they're not really going to pay me anything. I'm doing it just for the prestige. Otherwise, it would cost them
0: a pretty penny. I see. Well, never mind the pretty pennies. How many ugly dollars are you getting?
6: LAUGHTER
0: I'm not getting a cent, Groucho, if that's a lie, may the
5: roof fall in. I guess he won. I forgot the answer.
0: <laughs>
6: How do you think I
0: feel? I had the next
5: line.
6: <laughs>
5: now, Bob, let's be honest. We're both crooks. Now, Groucho, I'm not going <laughs> to... I didn't look at that good. Groucho, I'm not going to get a cent. Now, if that's a lie, I'm a gopher. Now, don't be silly, and stop trying to gnaw a hole in the floor. <laughs> Oh, uh, Bob, may I see you a second? Oh, sure, Marv. Excuse me, Grouch. This is very important, a matter of life for Sinatra. Say thanks for, <laughs> thanks for interrupting. You
0: save me some money. I've been working on an idea for the Walgreens show. Do you want to hear it? Did you hear about the two vultures who were plucking each other?
6: <laughs> That's my egg. Leave it alone. <laughs>
1: so that was March twenty seventh, 1947. And New you Better Life uh, premiered the following October.
2: I have two thoughts straight away. Um, the first is that I always assumed, or in the past I'd always assumed, that when you, when a guest star comes on one of one of these comedy mm-hmm. shows, the 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 normal writers for the show write. Right there mm. bit, but that I think is the third time i 've heard him do that mink coat routine, mm-hmm. um, so it it kind of implies that, that he he brings his little specialty with him which is which is interesting. I think the other thing I think is uh, my my feeling is that, that that kind of confirms what I thought, which is although doubtless a lot of what they said and did was spontaneous uh it was nonetheless planned that they would go off script at that point and do some spontaneous stuff because there are there are written lines in there with hope saying you know i can't get a word in edgeways and, and stuff mm. so um yeah i mean i i guess they did it extremely well uh and that was what c- got Goodell's attention, but but I, I'm sure it was what they were meant to do at that point.
3: Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that the audience, the studio audience responds so much more favorably to the apparently spontaneous jokes than to mm-hmm. the prepared ones. Um, and <clears throat> there isn't necessarily an obvious difference in quality if you just quoted them as lines. Um, but mm. spontaneity itself, or even the illusion of spontaneity uh, is so much more richly amusing in this kind of context where there's an expectation of kind of formulaic humor. Mm
1: -hmm. So Jay, how does this mesh with your understanding of how Goodell was inspired to do the series?
4: Well, it was very interesting to me because I could not detect what I regarded to sound as genuine ad-libbing. I mean... Beyond the narrow parameter of what we're accustomed to Groucho doing, like a mm. line or two, I didn't mm. I didn't detect a protracted sequence where they seemed to be, as I would characterize it, fumbling around. Mm. Um, to me, it sounded very much like you know ninety eight percent of this was from a script. Mm.
1: Well, I'd always been a little wary of that uh, the legend because. Mm. Bob Hope was not known as an ad-libber. You know, he he's famously was a great joke tower, but not a, known as an ad-libber. So I, I think I,
4: the story is yeah. that Hope inadvertently dropped the script. Right. And then that Groucho deliberately followed up by dropping his. That's yeah. that's the story, whether or not his ad And
6: stepped
3: on it, right? That he stepped on Hope's yeah, script well, to yeah. prevent him from picking it up. <laughs> he and stepped
1: it, on Hope's lines more than he stepped on his script. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no moment in that recording where you could where it seems like that's happened.
1: But to be fair, at least legend has it that this went on for like thirty, forty five minutes in the studio, and what we got here is a heavily edited version which aired. True. So we don't know exactly what what it was like in the studio.
2: I was going to say, presumably they did pick the best bits, though. Right. You know, what I mean, apart from risqué stuff that they had to cut, I imagine that what we're hearing is is the best of it.
3: Mm-hmm. I was, I wondered if maybe the, for the sake of the story, this radio appearance with Groucho and Hope could have been conflated with some other time, maybe at a USO show or something, um, when they did go off script a little more flagrantly.
1: Yeah, I could certainly see that. Anyhow, let's jump ahead. Uh, Groucho and Goodell worked on the idea and soon they were ready to record a pilot episode. So they commandeered Art Linkletter's audience in studio after a show one day and recorded their first attempt at You Bet Your Life. They used uh, Art's announcer, Jack Slattery, I believe his name was. And outside of a few little things here and there, it's very similar to the typical You Bet Your Life episode. All the, all the things are in place. Uh, Groucho does seem a little caffeinated, a bit excited he actually at times feels more like his movie character than the relaxed quizmaster we got to know later on.
0: Welcome to You Bet Your Life. Folks, we advertised for a lot of people to come to the show today who are interested in getting married but who haven't found the right mate yet. And just before we went on the air, these two volunteers were chosen from the audience. Have you two met each other before?
6: No.
0: Uh, no. Miss McHugh, uh, Miss McHugh, shake hands with Mr. Brooks. How do you do? I now pronounce you man and
6: wife.
0: <laughs> hey, wait a minute, Groucho. You're going a little bit too fast. Well, I guess I was a little hasty. Yeah. So you two want to get married, eh? Huh? That's
6: right.
0: Mr. Yeah. Brooks, may I ask one
1: question? Yes, Mr. Why?
6: <laughs>
1: so they finished this episode and brought it around to all the networks and they were turned down everywhere, believe it or not. I don't think it was because they didn't like the show. I think they were just wary because Groucho had had no success as the star of his own uh, series. And this was a totally different beast, being the game show, and perhaps they didn't know what to make of it. So everybody turned them down, and they didn't know where to turn. Uh, Finally... Could
4: could I jump in with a a little factoid for the listeners? I was reading Robert Dwan's book, As Long As They're Laughing, recently. And... Uh, he points out that, uh, Goodell and Groucho had, well, in fact, uh, this audition yeah. record that you refer to, um, was in fact rejected by, originally rejected by all three networks, NBC, right. CBS, and ABC. So what Goodell did, being rather savvy about such things, he went in search of a sponsor. Right. Let, let me read a little bit from a letter I received from John Goodell. I think it touches on this. Uh, this is from August 21st, 1978. He writes We went on the air October 27, 1947, on ABC for Elgin American Compact Company. Yeah. And then he, he, this is what I wanted to bring up. I, I sold the show to the client after reading that he was at the Beverly Hills Hotel to buy a Phil Baker quiz show. I got to him before he signed with Baker. The client didn't know Groucho had flopped four times on the radio. Mm. I had previously taken the edition record to all three networks, but they all turned it down because they knew of his flop. So anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that he had enough smarts and showbiz savvy to forget the network idea since they were not interested and went directly in search of a client,
6: mm-hmm.
4: which in this case, as he says, was Elgin American, Elgin American Compacts.
1: You know, Garazzo surrounded himself with these savvy radio minds who were doing whatever they could to make him and the show work. Perhaps the most... Important decision in the history of You Bet Your Life was the choice to record it and edit it down. Now, a lot of people think they recorded it ahead of time because they were worried that Groucho was going to go off color or be dirty, but that wasn't it at all. They just decided that they were going to record 45 or 60 minutes or whatever it was and edit it down and get the best 30 minute episode. It's, it's very simple and very logical.
2: So is that probably one of the first times it was ever consciously done? Um, for the purposes of, of making the show better. I mean, obviously editing was there to mm. remove any, any disasters. Right. Um, but, but just as a, just as a general purpose tool to make the thing better by, by slicing it up and, and picking the best bits. I guess that was pretty, pretty new.
4: And I was going to say in terms of, of the timing, um, with technology. That was very key. Yeah, I think that Robert Dwan writes something to the effect of he was working with acetate records. Am I right about that? Or records originally, but then either during the second or the third year on radio, magnetic tape suddenly became available. But then that there was a learning curve for Dwan and his assistants, his editing assistants with that too, because he had to figure out how to physically edit the this audio tape because it was so brand new. Right. I think Bing Crosby's people introduced it originally. Um and, and, and Crosby also worked for A B C Radio at the time. So it was easy enough for Duan and company to glom on to one of these few audio tape recording devices uh that were available to them. And of course later, um When they were shooting uh, television, they shot it, as we know, on film, because videotape did not exist at that time. And they continued to shoot on, I think it was 35 millimeter film. It was a kind of a technical dovetailing, if you will.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: I think it's interesting as well. There are some unedited recordings around aren't there that you can listen to the the pre-edited versions um they tend to be about an hour long mm. and um it, it's interesting if you listen to them because you you don't very often get the sense that groucho knows he's got this luxury he's got this liberty and and he, he you know he just relaxes into it and 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 kind of lets it all hang out i mean he, he's still he's still basically doing the show in one isn't he mm-hmm. um yeah. and then it, uh, only you know uh, only when the opportunity presents itself do they do they take advantage of that facility
3: uh, they're delightful those unedited episodes it's it's kind of a revelation
2: mm.
1: and now once and for all groucho decided to drop the grease paint mustache he decided he wasn't going to wear it the on stage in front of the studio audience, like he had for many of his radio appearances of the day, he was dropping it for good. And, uh, Bernie Smith did convince him, though, to grow a regular mustache to make himself somewhat recognizable. And, you know, it's probably just as well because this wasn't the movie character at all. A lot of people think it's an extension of it, but I don't, bu- I don't buy that. You know, he wasn't being harsh. He wasn't being insulting. He was doing gentle. Real-life humor, and that was totally opposite of what his movie character was all about. It it seems somewhat similar in delivery and in tone, but when you think about it, it's really a, a totally different character
2: and often self deprecating as well, which is the, the, the exact opposite
3: yes he 's never or let 's say rarely does he insult the contestants um, there 's almost no insult humor on you, bet your life usually, the stance he assumes is one of bafflement. Mm-hmm. he plays the puzzled um, interviewer mm-hmm. trying to make uh, trying to make sense of what he 's being told, and it 's only the kind of labyrinth of his comic mind that makes everything seem funny.
6: Mm.
3: Uh, Very often, contestants would just tell him what they did for a living, and the audience would laugh at what they knew he was thinking. Yeah.
2: and the very famous one with uh, that that strange man Albert Hall Um, again there is a a golden opportunity for him to go into insult humour but instead he acts frightened of him (laughs) which is so much funnier it's really really good the way he he implies that he's actually terrified of this weird bloke (laughs) where did you go when you left the farm?
0: Lincoln, Nebraska what were you doing there? Well, I went to school there. When I quit school, I got a job on the Nebraska State
7: Journal as a printer's devil. (laughs) Will
0: you ask him the next question? You were apprentice dabbler. Well, why did you get fired? Maybe you weren't the type, huh? I didn't get fired. Oh, well, what sort of work have you been doing lately? Uh, well, homicide? I came to Seattle and I got a job on the Seattle. You imagine time. if he doesn't win any money here, what's
6: going to happen?
2: <laughs> I'm
0: leaving long before that.
7: <laughs>
6: You say
0: you went to Seattle and you got a job on the paper?
7: Seattle Times in the composing room. I see.
0: <laughs> and how long were you there? Three years. Maybe I can out-frighten
2: um, Really, really good stuff.
3: It's interesting that his persona on the quiz show... Um, unlike his screen character and his stage character, where the point was always to kind of break down the assumed realities um, and talk to the audience, you know, what we would now call meta theatrical choices, the quiz show, which has no, it has no pretense at all. You know, we're not being presented with a story or characters or anything fictional. He's supposed to be in direct address to the audience. And most of the time, what he winds up doing is, you know, struggling to honor the rules. He'd be, he seems to be playing a fellow who'd be happy to get through this quiz show normally if these crazy contestants would just let him.
2: And also interesting, uh, following on from what you said, Bob, about um, him abandoning his traditional look. Um, it's interesting as well, isn't it? How his quiz show look, then sort of beco- almost becomes a look in itself, uh, his new look, to the extent that in the film, A Girl in Every Port, where he's playing a sailor, he is recognizably the You Bet Your Life Groucho. He's wearing the same glasses mm-hmm. uh, and obviously the real moustache. Um, and, you know, he, he's obviously um, being that Groucho in the film. Still, you
1: got to put yourself in the place of the audience in 1947. Now, think about it. Maybe there were some print ads and some newspaper photos, but they couldn't see him on the radio. They were picturing the grease paint mustache character doing the show. I don't think it was till the TV version uh, premiered where this new image of Groucho really took hold with the public. Mm. Okay. So now we got to address the elephant in the room. And that is how much of the show was actually scripted and prepared. You know, I guess it depends on who you talk to. You talk to the writers and producers, it's the majority of the show. You talk to Groucho, it was just the token amount. So I'm guessing the uh, truth lies somewhere in the middle.
4: By an odd coincidence, Bob. Yeah. I mentioned to Steve Stolier recently, I assume I don't need to identify this character. Anyway, I sent him an email merely mentioning that I was looking forward to this podcast. And he uh, he wrote a brief remark, which he allowed, he gave me basically permission to uh, to read this. <laughs> and he says, of the podcast, he says, I hope you explain that just because suggested lines were shown on an overhead projector behind the contestants, that doesn't mean the whole show was scripted. As I've heard some people say, for one thing, you could never count on normal people to have a sense of timing or read off cue cards convincingly. Mm. It would have been a horrible show if that had been the case. So it's fine to admit that his writers prepared a lot of material for him ahead of time. It wasn't all off the cuff stuff, but it does sound, it does Groucho a great disservice to dismiss all he did as, quote, reading a script. Off cue cards, unquote, or an overhead projector. It's interesting because I was listening to the Bernie Smith interview that I did years ago. Um, last night I was l- listening to it, and of course his stance is a little, uh, a little more uh, behind the role of the writer. I think he, he, he actually says and I think I've got a letter where he uh, reiterates this, that um, he speculates that perhaps, what was it? About 80%. 80, 80%. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah, you heard the same thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, but how they pulled that off is fascinating to me, that there are very few indications that he is reading There's a
3: big difference, isn't there, between prepared and scripted. I mean, you can be prepared without being scripted. And, uh, you know, it's it's very obvious, even just from watching the show, that it it isn't. It isn't utterly by design, you know it it feels spontaneous because it largely is, but he would be armed as you know with uh, you know a few good jokes, solid jokes about what the contestant did for a living, or he'd be prepared for what was funny about this particular mm-hmm. um interview subject. you know, I think he liked his prepared material and he took it out once in a while,
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I think both extremes are are obviously wrong um. Groucho went too far in implying, uh, that it was basically all, all, um, ad libbed. That inevitably, uh, causes people to, to go to the other extreme and, and say it's, it's all scripted. Obviously it isn't all scripted. On the other hand, uh, we're not just talking about a few. Little jokes here and there. I mean, the, the, they had a staff, they had a team of writers who, who every week, uh, you know, went away and 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 did something. They must have done something about five or six writers. Right. Um, Groucho never met the contestants before the show, so that they, there was there was never uh, it wasn't scripted in that sense. They weren't working off any kind of rehearsed material, but the the contestants were prepped. Uh, Groucho was prepped. Um, and these writers, um, and I, I guess it would be only fair to, to name some of them, um, howard harris uh who had written some material for a night in casablanca and copacabana so he he sort of had groucho weighed off uh a guy called ed doc tyler who was a fertility specialist uh but who was also wrote jokes a guy called elroy schwartz who was a a licensed hypnotherapist specializing in past life regression and also a joke writer for bob hope um and and several others so i think it's in um as long as they're laughing isn't it where um Um, It's it's the analogy is made with scaffolding. They uh, they they provide a scaffolding that is there to catch Groucho if if he needs it. Um, But if he doesn't need it, then so much the better.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you listen to a show, it's hard to not notice at least three or four jokes every every episode. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. yeah. But but for the most part, you know, it's a fine line and certainly it's not distracting or, or bothersome or. Mm. makes you think less of Groucho's uh, uh, ability. Uh,
3: In in a way, it's the inverse of the old way it was, right? It used to be that Groucho worked with a script but seized opportunities Mm -hmm. to ad-lib and be spontaneous as they came up. Mm. And you bet your life is kind of the opposite. He worked without a script in casual conversation but seized any opportunity to work in a prepared piece of material.
1: By the way, Matthew, you were mentioning the uh, writers before that Ed Doc Tyler was apparently quite a character. Uh, he left under some uh, nefarious circumstances and didn't sign the contract to allow the episodes he worked on to be rerun. He left after the, uh, the
2: 1953, 1954 season. Yeah. Um, and I spoke to his daughter. Yeah. Um, and uh, she said uh Groucho kept his distance from the writers as he wanted his fans to think he had lived all his lines. I only saw him once or twice when my dad took me to the show's set. Yeah. But my impression of him was that he was kind of sour and unpleasant, not funny, and not interested in socializing with the adults and certainly not with the kids. <laughs> um but but Bernie Smith's uh daughter, Lucinda Irwin Smith, um, who I also spoke to, had um <laughs> Vastly more uh, rosy memories of uh, of the working process. So I think Groucho kind of relaxed over time, but yeah, Doc Tyler made uh, made a, a fairly swift exit. I've yeah.
4: got a quick anecdote about about the Tyler family, if I can Please. squeeze it in here somehow. Um, years ago, I was working for a media production department at the University of Minnesota, and we were. Trying to well we we were auditioning faculty members because we needed a host of a magazine type show, in other words, a sixty minutes type show that would feature various aspects of the university and at one point um doc Tyler 's daughter, who is a historian
6: yeah
4: i mean she 's a history faculty member at the university. Her name is Elaine Tyler May. And, uh, you know, she came in to audition and I didn't make the connection. I, I wasn't even thinking about it, but I was in the room and my supervisor was, you know, grilling her in, in a very nice fashion, but, you know, trying to figure out if she had the chops for this. And suddenly, um, uh, Elaine Tyler May said, well, I'm very accustomed to being in front of a camera, because I grew up in Hollywood, and my father used to take all these home movies uh, of us in 16 millimeter. And suddenly, my the index cards in my brain, the, the Rolodec, uh file in my brain is flipping around these cards. I'm thinking, Elaine Tyler May, Elaine Tyler May, and suddenly I jumped up and I I said, "You're Doc Tyler's daughter." <laughs> And this effectively derailed the interview because I was only interested in hearing about Doc Tyler and you bet your life. And I remember my boss Mary just looking aghast at me with her jaw dropped. It's like, what is this guy doing? But I got it on my system after about two hours, I guess. But before <laughs> before she left the room, I I said, hey, uh, guess what? I collect, you bet your life, film. And I think I've got about four of the shows that are not in syndication that your father worked on at Ed, Ed Tyler. Mm-hmm. And I said, How about if we have these transferred to VHS tape and then you can see them? And she said, Great. So that's how that came about. What an odd coincidence, though. You know, I never would have expected this. Yeah. By the way, she, did, she didn't get the part. <laughs> Probably
2: because of me. I can't remember how I got in touch with her. Was it Was it you that put me in touch with her? Yeah. Yeah.
4: That's right. I'm so delighted that you did, Matthew. Thank you so much. Uh, when did that happen, Jay?
3: How many years after You Bet Your Life was that audition, that
4: encounter? Well, let's see now. I would say that that would be around... 1994, something like that.
3: Yeah, so it's a good 40 years. Oh, yeah.
4: yeah.
1: So there are a couple of full seasons from the middle of the show's run which were never put into syndication and never rerun because of this contractual issue. What what years were those?
4: Well, I think Matthew mentioned the years, but I've got them here somewhere, too. Oh, here it is. Um, uh, Doc Tyler worked on the show from... Uh, October of 1950 to September of 1954.
1: Wow. <laughs> that's that's quite a hole in the middle of that uh, mm. the donut.
4: Yeah, it's a shame because these are no longer – you might find them on YouTube.
1: And I have to believe whatever issues there were back then, those contracts have lapsed, uh, maybe with his death or whatever. But uh, I'm sure those episodes would be available if they exist.
4: Yeah, that would be nice. Well, I mean, this late date, I can't imagine anybody doing that. But it would have been a wonderful thing if they had been part of that package that was eventually syndicated. But, of course, the syndicated prints were sabotaged for reasons that we may or may not go into. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, so we're missing that uh, content by and large, or at least if you're watching it in, in syndication, you're missing it.
1: So according to Goodell, and if you believe his telling of this, he invented the rerun. Uh, apparently, at the end of the first season of You Bet Your Life, he he and Groucho sat down, and they were a bit worried about what show ABC was going to replace it with over the summer, which was the common practice of the day. And Goodell got to thinking, why don't we take the best episodes from our first season and run them over the summer? And he went to ABC and proposed this, and they thought he was out of his mind, frankly, but eventually he was able to convince them. And during that first summer, the audience grew. And by the time the show entered its second season, it was a big hit, at least by ABC standards. Eventually, it landed at CBS Radio and now was one of the major networks. And when CBS started running it, it became one of the top shows on radio. It was a bona fide hit. And that meant it was ripe for TV. And Groucho and Goodell knew this, and they had all the leverage and they listen to all the networks, uh, fawn over them and try and get on their good side and offer the most money and whatever else. And that led to a fascinating, uh, incident at the, a party one night. Uh, who wants to tell that story?
4: It was at somebody's house. It was Gummo's. A, 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 I think it
1: was Gummo's. Gum. Hey, well
4: done. Yes, Bob. <laughs> Gummo's house. And, uh, Bill Paley arrives first. And I believe an executive from NBC uh, was arriving late. He was tardy because of a a flight issue. You know, the flight was delayed. Hmm. So basically, Paley had this great opportunity to get this deal closed before NBC had a shot. And... um, Yeah, Groucho went into Gummo's bathroom for the usual reason, I assume,
2: Mm.
4: and Paley had the chutzpah, if you want to call it that, to follow Groucho into the bathroom, shut the door. So that part was good, that he shut the door. (laughs) And, uh, you know, according to R.C. and others, uh, he basically cornered Groucho and said, um, I think as a quote, he said, uh, we Jews should stick together. And Groucho, well, for one thing, Sarnoff was, you know, working at NBC. But uh Groucho, appropriately enough, took great offense at this ploy of Paley's. And the decision went in favor of NBC, not entirely due to this, but it certainly was a factor. And eventually, you know, the guy from, NBC showed up, and eventually they got the contract.
1: Are we sure it wasn't the fact that he came into the bathroom with Grush? <laughs> Maybe that's what turned him off? That would, that would be the deal breaker for me.
4: I hate, I hate it every time this happens to me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's why, in my mind, I had
3: it happening in a public bathroom because it's slightly less, you know, uh, egregious a violation. Creepy. Yeah. 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 I, I, I find it really significant at, uh, that Groucho would have um, objected to that kind of tribalist mm-hmm. appeal. Um, and I think it speaks well of him. Uh, but, but yeah, somebody follows you into the bathroom in a private home closes the door and says, listen, we got to stick together. I mean, wouldn't you want to get as far away as you could from that person? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. So the series ended up on NBC TV, and Goodell, as before, insisted that it be done ahead of time where it could be edited and get the best possible half hour. And the only way to accomplish this in that era was to do it on movie film. Videotape was still years away. So they went to a great expense of shooting every episode on multiple 35-millimeter cameras where it could be edited. And I don't know if they realized it at the time, but this had the benefit of giving them high-quality episodes that could be rerun indefinitely into the future. They weren't beholden to low-quality kinescopes, which nobody wanted to rerun. Yeah,
2: we are in- Incredibly lucky, actually.
4: Yeah, indeed. And according to Robert Dwan, um, this predated Lucy. Yeah. So uh, they came up with this thing on their own. And um, he went on to say that because I think they ultimately had seven cameras, that's where the expense came in.
6: Mm -hmm.
4: You know, even though the quiz itself gave away relatively low amounts of money. Uh, It was a very expensive show to produce for that reason.
1: They had to shoot so much film. I didn't know until fairly recently that the series continued on radio for many years after it had started on TV. And what makes it even more interesting is the fact that there were totally separate edits done for the radio and TV versions. The TV version could obviously have more visual stuff on it and stunts and so forth while I guess the radio version stuck more to the uh, interaction between Groucho and the guests. I'd love to do a side-by-side comparison of the same episode, how it was edited for radio and for TV. Have any of you come across uh, the different versions?
2: No. That's very interesting because, stupidly, um, I'd always assumed that they were completely separate shows in the way that over here um hancock's half hour was running on radio and television at the same time but they were completely different programs and i've just with that probably with that model in mind i i had an idea that they were doing a radio show and a television show i didn't realize they were actually the same shows on both media
3: it's also be interesting to take some of those unedited episodes the handful of complete um, performance recordings that we have. And, you know, you know, Bob, you could do your own edit, you know, you yeah. could, just, <laughs> how would you have broken down that hour to, uh, to a half hour? You bet your life. Mm-hmm. isn't it surprising sometimes how visual the show was the tv version you know uh, one of the best things about it i think is groucho just he's in front of an audience and he kind of has freedom to do what pops into his head um it's amazing how often he gets up and dances or mm. demonstrates something or uh, he's constantly um prodding the contestants to perform if they have performance ability or even if they don't in a way it's a sometimes it turns into this groucho hosted talent show
4: those were the, the highlights for me. I used to stay up late at night when it was syndicated. That's when I really began to get into You Bitch Your Life. And uh, yeah, any, any time that, you know, uh, well, Melinda, for example, I clocked via Bernie Smith's uh, credit listing information the number of times that Melinda, Melinda was on the show, if I can say her name, uh, nine times. Hmm. I think Dwan, uh says in his book, we're really uh, publicizing his book, I hope it's still in print, um, but uh, he claims that she was on every season. Well, not the case, because among these nine times that I identified, yeah. there were a couple of seasons when she was on twice. But I was going to say, it's those special, unexpected little production pieces, yeah. if you will, that that... To me are the highlights, and also that's I think why they needed that seventh camera because you never knew when Groucho was going to jump off the podium, and pick up somebody and start dancing with her, and occasionally dancing with Feniman mm. or what have you, you know. And and those are really uh, really
1: special moments for me anyway. Ah, Feniman, you, you said the yeah. secret word, Jay. Let, let's talk about Mister George Feniman for a bit here. Tell tell us a little about him. Feniman was originally hired, I believe, to simply do
4: the on-air commercials for radio. Right. And Groucher took a liking to him for some reason. And during one of the uh, tapings, I call it tapings, but they were recordings on uh, record. And uh, he got off the podium and, and disrupted one of the commercials, I believe. And he just took a shining to Fenneman for some reason. He just thought he was, as we characterize it, the perfect foil yeah. because he was he was straight on four all four sides, I believe Groucho yeah. said. Mm-hmm. And uh eventually the guy that was the announcer, Slattery, was that his name? Yeah. Um, he was dropped and Fenneman took over that part. So he now introduced the show, assisted with the warm up and so forth. And, of course, then he had to go through the, you know, rather complicated instructions for the quiz originally. Excuse me. So he had to, you know, be there pretty much all the time to introduce the contestants, to explain the rules of the game, to follow along, do the arithmetic, Hmm. tell them what their score was, and that (laughs) sort of thing. So he spent a fair amount of time on camera, did he not? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yes. And as you mentioned, yeah, he was very determined to keep everything in order. The, the rules of the game and the scores and everything. And when nobody else seemed to care, when Grostra didn't seem to care or know what was going on, George was there to keep things in order.
2: I think inevitably yeah. the person who occupied that role is going to be the obvious foil for Groucho, because by definition, that person is a stiff. That person is just there to impart information in an extremely professional way and get off, and that's their job. So obviously Groucho is, is going to tease at that person to get them to to be something other than that, to be more spontaneous, more natural. And I think it was just a a wonderful stroke of good fortune that, having started on that process with Fenneman, Fenneman revealed himself to be such a good sport and so charming uh, and and so willing to, to go along with it.
0: Why are you here together? Are you sisters? No. Brothers? No. Why are you here together? Mr. Fitterman found out that we're roommates. And I beg your us pardon? Be your show. What was that?
8: Mr. Fitterman.
0: Mr. Fitterman? <laughs> what show is he connected with, huh? <laughs> You don't mean Rademacher, do you? Huh? <laughs> Who is Mr. Fitterman? Uh, where did you meet him? We simply met him, and he invited us to be on your show. You don't mean. You mean Fenneman?
6: That's right.
0: <laughs> oh. Does he tell you his name was Fenneman? I
6: can't pronounce it.
0: He's trying to hide something. Huh? You mean he found out? Uh, well, how did he find? Why did he want you here? He found out what? Uh, we're both so, uh, so much alike in so many ways. You were roommates. Uh, yes. Is that what you said before? Mm-hmm. Roommates. Where's Fenneman? Get him out of here.
6: <laughs>
0: hey, Fenneman, come out of here. You changed your name, I see,
6: huh?
0: <laughs> Why did you do this, George? I didn't do anything, honest. They <laughs> told me you... They told me that you said that you, your name was Pittman. Now, you must have been doing it for some reason. <laughs> when I use a different name, there's a reason for it. <laughs> and I'm sure there is when you do it. Aren't you a married man? Uh, up till now I was, yes. Uh... Then well, why do you use a non de plume? Uh, <laughs> Well, how, did, uh, how did you find out they were roommates? Well, uh... <laughs> George, it's, it's... I'm not criticizing you. I, I just want to know what technique you use, that's all.
1: There's not many people you could tell that Groucho actually liked, but you could tell he liked Fenneman. They had a very good-natured uh, rapport, and they became friends and Fenneman was a part of Groucho's life till the very end. And you can't say that about everyone.
3: Feniman seems to give Groucho some currency um, in the era of You Bet Your Life. You know, it's interesting how often Groucho's um, posture on the show is that of an old man. Um, he's not really that old yet; he's in his sixties during the run of You Bet Your Life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he presents himself very much as a figure from an earlier era. He he tells old vaudeville stories. A lot of the humor is is at the expense of at his own expense in terms of being, uh, you know, aged and out of touch. Um, and Feniman is such a 1950s figure, the, the way he comes across on You Bet Your Life. Um, his look, his sound, everything about him. He's like sort of a perfect 50s, um, generic American male. Um, and he sort of brings Groucho into what was then current day.
1: You know, when you see the, uh, episodes uncut or you look online, you'll find that Groucho did commercials for DeSoto. Um, very often these were Elaborate film pieces. They're, they're interesting. Sometimes there's music or animation. They're worth seeking out.
2: I don't like seeing him in, in that sort of subservient position of, of sell, you know, I like, I'd rather he make fun of the sponsor mm-hmm. than, uh, than, you know, was actually plugging away for them. Um, there is a there is a, a nice exchange with Miriam in one of her letters from April of 1953, where she has obviously said to him that he comes across as insincere in those moments. And he wrote back and said, uh, it's true what you write about me seeming insincere in the commercials. Actually, I am. But they feel that it has an extra value over Feneman's mouthing this drivel. So I'm obliged to do it. I do it willingly, but badly. And as you say, I guess it's pretty evident on the screen.
4: Well the familiar phrase to us anyway tell him Groucho sent you had everything to do with those commercial spots mm-hmm. because he was advising obviously the audience to run out and see your DeSoto Plymouth. De- Why is it never Plymouth? It's always <laughs> Plymouth. Run Plima. out and see yeah. your de Soda Plymouth deal tomorrow <laughs> and when you do tell him Groucho sent you. And some of those uh, original commercials that we refer to um, Harken back to Horse Feathers to some extent Because they have him opening the DeSoto Plymouth um, icon Which is circular mm-hmm. So he opens it as if it's a, a, What do they call those windows in a, a speakeasy door? So it re- reminds me, of course, of the swordfish scene but um, you know, at least, at least the writers of that particular spot had had a good time with it. Whether or not Groucho did, I don't know. I don't think he did, as as Matthew says.
3: It's funny that during his radio career. Um Outside of You Bet Your Life, mocking commercials was a pretty standard bit for him. Um, I guess he did some of that stuff in the films, too, like in the barn and monkey business, you know, doing radio commercials. Um, but, you know, all those like on the big show with Tallulah Bank had those Plebo Company spots that Groucho did. Uh, those are kind of a high point of his radio, his non You Bet Your Life radio work, I think. Um, and so to hear him doing these genuine commercials with something that is... I guess at least trying for sincerity, um, is strange. It seems out of character for him. And, and I guess we know from the letter that Matthew quotes, um, that Groucho was aware of it and was uncomfortable with the, the sort of, um, the chasm between what his persona, even this version of his persona should be doing and what he was called upon to do by the sponsors.
1: Mm-hmm. And speaking to the sponsors, that's actually a good segue. I have a question. Actually, it's a rhetorical question. Now, as we all know, so many of the uh, existing versions of the episodes that we have available to us today are these Best of Groucho episodes, you know, with that title. That means they are reruns that were prepared after the show went off the air. And for whatever reason, they felt compelled to get rid of all the DeSoto logos, even though DeSoto didn't even exist anymore. But they had to get rid of all those logos, which meant blowing up shots and awkwardly framing things, which made the show very unattractive. But my question is, why didn't anyone have the foresight to see that this might be an issue down the line? I, I don't get it.
2: What would have been the harm in leaving them in? I mean, yeah, uh, Bernie why, why Smith, not just uh, leave them in?
4: Yeah, he brought that up um, over lunch once, Bernie Smith, and he, he said, who cares about you know a hmm. sign on the podium that says DeSoto? They don't even make the sodas anymore. Right. Well, I used to have a 16 millimeter print of a repeat show, and it begins with Fenneman looking at the camera, Mm. explaining that it is a repeat show. But then you go, and this is from the Groucho show, which was the final season. Mm. And, hey, guess what? Um, The advertisements for Lever Brothers products are there on the podium. Mm. So I always thought that this business of blowing up the image in order to avoid the product signage mm-hmm. and to put the little black dot over the microphone where it said NBC. Yeah. I, I I always thought they had done that with the more recent syndication, which I would speculate was in the
1: 80s. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's been like this ever since I started watching the show in the 70s. I only remember it being this way. I think what you're talking about is a rerun that happened while the show was still in first-run production, which could have aired pretty much as it did originally with the ads intact. But once the show went into syndication, those were the ones that had to be uh, tweaked and fixed for the sponsor ads. So, anyhow, why don't we move on and let's talk about, well, let's go backwards. Let's talk about our first experiences with You Bet Your Life, how we all discovered it. We all knew the brothers and the movies before we knew the TV show, but for Millions of people, a generation of people, they knew Groucho first and foremost from You Bet Your Life. And, you know, we shouldn't discount that. But why don't we all talk about how we first discovered the show? Noah, why don't you start us off? Uh, fairly
3: early on in my explorations of the Marx Brothers, I bought a, an audio cassette tape that I had randomly found at some store somewhere. It was a rack of old time radio tapes you know uh jack benny show the burns and allen show and one of them was actually all it said on the packaging was groucho marx Mm -hmm. um with a picture of the you bet your life groucho and this tape had two episodes of the radio you bet your life Mm -hmm. and for years that was all i had of you bet your life i listened to those two episodes a lot and know them by heart and then i think i started to you know find it on television and Uh, it was a whole other dimension of him. I I think I thought then the same thing I think about it now, which is that it's a very ordinary game show, um, but it has this outstanding feature, which is an opportunity to, observe groucho as a living organism um that's that's what is good about it um and i think i think i kind of had its number right away like oh this is great a half hour of just listening to groucho talk and seeing him react to things and he's one of the most fascinating people who ever lived and you know this is a chance to observe him, and it seems, compared to the Marx Brothers film, like observing him in his natural habitat somehow, even though <laughs> that's not quite accurate. But right. just watching him kind of exist, you could watch him think. Um, and um, I think that's its great value.
1: Jay?
4: You know, I have a very dim memory in general, but in terms of... You Bet Your Life, I have a a very dim memory of that when originally aired. Mm. I seem to remember uh, coming across it once and actually being frightened by (laughs) the show. You know, this strange duck dropping down Mm -hmm. and this this peculiar kind of odd-looking man with the mustache and the cigar. Um However, when um, they syndicated it locally, I used to stay up every night. It was on at one o'clock, and I'd be sitting there with my reel-to-reel tape deck, taking copious notes. This is—I think this is about the time of the Marx Brotherhood fan club that I started. Some listeners may have heard of it, but that's what led to me writing to John Goodell. Mm-hmm. And Bernie Smith. And I'll tell you one thing. I'm so delighted that I met three of the principals involved with You Bet Your Life. Mm. I met the producer, John Goodell. I met the head writer, Bernie Smith. And I met the duck. (laughs) (laughs) Because Bernie was keeping the duck in his daughter's old closet. Hmm. So when I was over at his place looking over the You Bet Your Life records, he suddenly said, you want to meet the duck? So I went into the room. He handed me ducky. He took a photograph of me holding ducky. And everything was ducky as far as I was concerned. <laughs> oh, can you delete that joke later? <laughs>
1: Did he stick you with the bill, Jack? I could, but I won't. <laughs> okay, now Matthew, I'm sure, is a totally different uh, story.
2: Yeah, I first saw it. Um as I've said before, it never ever aired over here. It wasn't shown until a couple of years ago on some obscure um satellite channel, if they're still even called that now. Um we, we never we never had it. Um but I first saw a five second clip of it, weirdly enough, in a documentary film called This Is Elvis. I'd already become a Marx Brothers fan, probably not long before. And it was a clip of the program, and it was a woman who was obsessed with Elvis. And she said, uh, I-, I have locks of his hair. And Groucho said, y- you have locks of his hair? Do you have any cream cheese to go with it? <laughs> and... It sort of took me a beat of three to even realize it was Groucho. And it was something, oh, my God, that's Groucho. Mm-hmm. And that was the, that was my absolute discovery of You Bet Your Life. I had no inkling of it until then. So I, I then went away and looked it up and found out about it. Uh, and then I would have seen some clips on the Nutshell documentary and the other documentaries. Um, but I didn't see the program until the, I got DVDs of them. So probably no more than about 10 years ago.
1: So do we know the reason why the show was never run there, either first run or in reruns?
2: It was never uh, run, because, unfortunately, because it was this curious hybrid of a comedy program and a, and a quiz show. Uh, we imported comedy programs. We had I Love Lucy. We had The Benny Show. Uh, but quiz shows... Uh, were felt to, uh, be not importable because the, the frames of reference would be meaningless. So if there Mm -hmm. was a hit, if there was a hit quiz show, like what's my line, for instance, which was very big over here Mm -hmm. too, we would make our own version of it. But the problem with you bet your life is the game wasn't worth doing our own version of it. And, um, the fact that it was really just an excuse for Groucho to be funny. Um, unfortunately, uh, it, it fell between stools. We did do a version in the the mid-60s. We brought him over. Unfortunately, not not a hit. But the the episode I've seen is extremely good.
1: Yeah, we talked about this a few episodes ago. It's just really fascinating. Groucho did a series of shows based on You Bet Your Life over in the UK. And by all accounts, it was a total disaster. However, the one episode that we've heard, it's, it's exceptional. And it just shows perhaps how the show could have evolved into the 1960s.
4: Apparently, by the way, that's on the Shelt Factory collection. Yeah, that's, yeah. And, that's, where um, we talk, that's
1: where we talked about it.
4: Yeah. And uh, apparently that's the only extant print.
2: He did 13, didn't he, I think. Um, I, I think uh, so, yes. Yeah. The that's... ratio of, of saved to lost in British television in the 60s is terrifying, unfortunately.
1: I think I've mentioned this before. I first became aware of You Bet Your Life through this record album. It was called The Golden Age of Comedy. came out, I think, in the early 70s. And it had all these clips of the famous radio comedians from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And, uh, you know, it actually has my favorite version of Who's On First. So maybe you guys should seek it out for that. But it had a short excerpt from uh, You Bet Your Life, and and I really enjoyed it. And this was before the TV show had its big resurgence.
0: You say you're married, huh? That's right What does your husband do for a living? He's a tread booker for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company He's a what?
6: A tread booker
0: Well, give him my congratulations What is a tread broker? I don't know Don't you know what your husband does? What does he tell you?
6: Nothing He he keeps
0: away from my pots and pans And I keep away from his tires Uh, Well, that's very shrewd, especially if you don't want to get run over. <laughs> it's really true. The point that you
3: were making earlier, Bob, about how, in in some ways, Groucho, or or among some audiences, Groucho is much more famous as the host of You Bet Your Life than as the comedian of the stage and screen. And yeah, um, particular, and I guess it well, it's because of the mass audience of television and the fact that the heyday of You Bet Your Life is already like twenty years or more. Um, later than the best of the Marx Brothers films. But a lot of people in my father's... Look, my father was born in 1949, so his childhood lines up perfectly with the first original run of You Bet Your Life. And that's who Groucho was to him. It was kind of surprising to him later to realize, oh, there was this whole Marx Brothers thing that happened long before Groucho was a game show host. And I've heard Dick Cavett, or, or read Dick Cavett, making that same point, too, that he... He knew Groucho's voice from the quiz show and and caught up with the films Mm -hmm.
1: later. And as I mentioned earlier, and Matthew goes into great detail about this in his book, Groucho was just so extremely proud of his success here. It was really Mm -hmm. something that he had been striving for since his earliest days on stage, you know, this big success on his own.
2: And you also get the sense, at least until, um, you know, the, the big Marx revival when he's being interviewed, uh, you know, w- when, uh, you bet your life is still current. Uh, he absolutely thinks that that is, this is his legacy, that this, mm-hmm. this is what he's going to be leaving behind is that he, he's going right. to be the you bet your life guy. Uh, you know, and in a footnote, it, it, back in prehistory, he was a, he was a film comedian and a stage comedian, you know.
4: Also, this man yeah. was very insecure about his finances. And this thing, you know, it ran for 14 seasons, as we pointed out, and he suddenly had every reason to feel financially secure.
3: And financially secure without ever having to travel, uh, Mm. you know, without ever having to go through an arduous rehearsal and blocking experience. Um, It was a very easy gig for him.
2: And, and yeah. as you say, apart from those wonderful occasions when he, when he does feel the need to, to, to get up and be physically spontaneous, not even physical. I mean, he actually says that, uh, that one of the best things about the job for him is that it's sitting down.
1: <laughs> yeah. He actually had a suit jacket, uh, that was tailored, uh, for sitting down.
4: Yeah. You want to get the little flap. In the back, by the neck. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is true though that I, I, I've noticed that any
3: time on You Bet Your Life, any time the Marx Brothers do come up as a subject. The audience reacts, you know, very enthusiastically to it. I mean, uh, the Marx Brothers were still this beloved act, and I guess it—I yeah. guess it would be, you know, more the people in the audience who weren't too young. I don't think it was that young an audience anyway. You know, I remember you know times when Groucho would be talking to an Italian person and would throw in a half-hearted reference like, you know, my brother Chico's Italian, and the audience would go crazy for that.
1: Well, speaking of the brothers. One of the regrets I have is that they did not uh, take part in the show more than they did. Uh, Harpo did appear, but that was near the very end, almost one of the very last episodes, and that was only to promote his book, and he was only on for a minute or two. Chico was seen occasionally in the audience. or And on the payroll. Right. That might have been one time that they just reused the footage. I don't know how many times he was actually there. But uh, word has it that Harpo and Chico were there and did take part in the audience warm-ups. And did do a lot of hijinks with Groucho. So it's just surprising that they were never really brought onto the show more than they were. And, and not, only, not only them, but Zeppo, and particularly Gummo. Wouldn't that have been wonderful to bring Gummo on oh, just wow. yeah. as a contestant and have as a, a contestant, segment yeah. with him? Yeah, yeah. That would've it would have been, been great. Been great. Um, yeah. He had he Harry
3: Ruby on. I just saw that one recently. Hey, Ru- I, mm. I
4: got some dates for you. He was on that show twice he was on wonderfully um, on uh, june 14 1956 that's the show where he re- he sang with groucho no he played the piano and sang with groucho the window cleaner song
0: groucho you now harry and i go to many parties together and we always sing this song i don't know the words too well but uh, we're going to sing this together try it anyhow. Anyway. <laughs> window cleaning's not a job to rave about it won't get you in the Hall of Fame. No one ever looks at you or points you out. And the papers never print your name. But it's interesting just
6: the same.
0: Every morning we begin on the outside looking in. You bet we see a lot while we massage the window pane out the window we would go if, if we, we told the things we know but we're too wise to scandalize to some and gossip we, we refrain as an occupation our vocation may be the real one means. we are not afraid to work we're paid to keep the windows clean Bye.
6: We know lots of
0: married men who'd be single once again if we told what we see while we massage the window pane, mm-hmm. polishing the glasses for the masses is what you call ideal. Even though it's not a cinch, it's got a lot of sex appeal. Oh, <laughs> but. We don't want to advertise, why should we put husbands wise? If they were wise, there'd be no guys.
6: Massaging with no pain.
4: And for years, I thought that was the only episode, but there is a more obscure episode On June 8, 1961, where he appeared, and of course on both occasions, as was practically always the case with celebrities, you know, whatever he won was donated to charity. But what a kick for any Marx Brothers fan who happens to be watching You Bet Your Life, and on comes Groucho's dear friend, Harry Ruby.
2: Just to rewind to uh, to Chico, though, Jay, I think you were about to use one of my all-time favorite phrase is creamy prom <laughs> watch your language would you <laughs> don't you realize there are some children turning off this podcast of course they would have done that anyway
4: but... well yes um yeah marx brothers fans who are familiar with you bet your life are probably aware that harpo and chico were hired to do these you know Pretty amusing commercials for Creamy Prom, which was a uh, soap, <laughs> was it not? Shampoo, well, I
2: think, wasn't it? Or was it
4: a shampoo? It was a ha- hair,
2: be- hair product, I think, yeah. A hair product. Of
4: course, I wouldn't know anything about hair products. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Rogaine,
1: possibly. But. But, yeah. Gee, you, look like, you look like Jack Benny right now. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, for heaven's sake. <laughs>
4: Well, yeah, I, you know, you adopt these mannerisms. I just can't
1: help, you know. You know, there are a couple of stills uh, floating around with Chico and Harpo on the set with uh, Fenneman, you know, horsing around. Uh, maybe these were done during one of those warm-ups that they did. You know, maybe that's why Groucho wasn't there. Uh, Jay, do you have any idea when or why these were done?
6: I
4: don't know. I don't know. I'm not a wellspring of <laughs> knowledge here.
1: Okay, well, let's move on. I guess you can't do a podcast about the history of You Bet Your Life uh, without uh, discussing this, and it's probably why many of you have tuned in, so here we go.
7: The great Groucho Marx, known for his sharp wit, ad-libbed the following when he asked the contestant why he had 12
0: children. Why do you have so many children? Uh, Because I like my wife. I like my cigar, too, but I take it out sometimes. (laughs)
1: gentlemen
3: (laughs) well for one thing let's just clear the decks of this obvious problem which is that that very bad recreation of that theoretical moment in history messes up the joke by making it the husband and not the wife being interviewed
2: it was definitely the wife because i've seen it (laughs) <laughs> yes,
3: I mean that's the least of the problems. But I decided to stake out that territory. I'll, I'll let you guys debunk the larger story. What? Well, but if you were going to the trouble to put that on your record, and why wouldn't you? It's not. It's not a difficult joke to get. That's why everyone loves it so much. It's. It's the the woman. The man is the cigar. Or unless I have the whole thing wrong. I,
6: maybe I've been doing it wrong all these years.
4: I was gonna say. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that line with a ten-foot pole.
3: It's not the length of the pole, Jake.
4: Oh man!
2: Yeah. So basically, there's, there's this this uh, rumor legend um, sprung up from somewhere at some time that 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 Garcha said this exchange to a woman. Uh, I, I uh, why do you have so many kids? Mrs. Story, well, I think. Yeah. Mrs. Story, yeah. Uh, Let like me cigar. I take it out occasionally, and. He, um, it was adamant that, that, he, that he never said it. Uh, and he said, you know, I wish I had because it's a great line. And, you know, and it's so out of character for Groucho to, uh, say he didn't do something that he did. I mean, it would be, it would be the most unprecedented, um, reversal of, of the Groucho we know for him to not take credit for something he did do. So I think the fact that he was, it was emphatically saying, no, it's, it's a great line, but it, no, it's, it's a myth. Um, is kind of the the, or should be the the last word on it unfortunately the pool has been muddied subsequently uh, partly because uh, Bernie Smith I think it was uh, was was certain that it did happen and then he kind of infected Robert Dwan with the same certainty Uh, but also because unfortunately in that book Secret Life of uh, not Secret Life of um, Secret Secret Word is Groucho suddenly Groucho does take credit for it but I think that's easily explained in that it, this is Groucho at the very end of his life. It's heavily, um, ghosted, uh, by, by Hector Arcee and he probably, uh, wasn't even aware that there was a controversy over it and he just assumed it was true. So he put it in there. He put it in there as Groucho confirming it. Uh, maybe Groucho's memory even had, had gone a bit by then and, and he, he thought he had said it. But um nobody has ever been able to prove it. Nobody has ever been able to produce it. And all the people who say, yes, it's true because I saw it or because I heard it um are obviously wrong because it was never broadcast. It was a radio show. So the 50% of people who are certain they saw it are wrong by definition. But also it would have been edited out. So the only people, if it existed, who would have heard it were the people in the studio audience. So the every time if it had
1: aired, the show would have been canceled, you know, within days or Goodell at least would have been fired. You know, either way, it would have been a a national scandal that would be easy to uh, verify these days.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So every time you mention it online or see it mentioned online, you'll see two or three people who are certain that it happened because they saw it or because they heard it. It's one of, it's an interesting example of what I believe they call the Mandela effect. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And just to clarify, uh, that little clip I played was from an album called Pardon My Blooper, which was part of a series done by this uh, TV producer, Kermit Schaefer, did a bunch of those albums so from the, I think the fifties through the seventies and, The majority of the clips on these albums were these piss-poor recreations, you know, like (laughs) he just heard. But I guess back then the audience wasn't that sophisticated and didn't know the difference, or maybe they didn't care. But uh, Schaefer really uh, paved the way for Dick Clark and his blooper uh, TV shows. Uh, He showed that there really was an audience for this stuff.
4: Maybe Mrs. Story should be rechristened Mrs. Bogus Story. (laughs) (laughs)
3: i think the story is the what's powerful about this isn't it i think the reason so many people are under the impression that they saw or heard groucho say this is because it is a phenomenal joke i mean it's a great line it sounds like him it it sounds like it could be him. It's pleasingly naughty without being, you know, a, a really right. objectionable or unpleasant in any way. And it's a kind of, um, it's a dirty joke that's kind of safe for all audiences. So a lot of kids have heard it. A lot of parents have told it, um, you know, so a lot of people received it early on. And it's so easy to imagine Groucho saying it. I, I, I think,
1: think it's- Gives him a- some street cred.
2: I- don't know if anybody's done any research into the the earliest uh example of of when it was claimed i mean i wonder if it doesn't date from the time uh in the same sort of way that uh, a director out of wood dates from from a day at the races that it was a kind of semi semi promotional journalistic uh plant um we know that um for instance um his uh, his writers his team of writers were involved in those napkins which were which were for the time pretty risqué um, joke cartoons on napkins that he promoted on the program so one wonders if maybe one of those one of those writers kind of planted this story in the press that that he'd said this this joke that they had to cut and it maybe started there as a, as a semi official lie as it were, rather than something that just appeared from from midair. And maybe um, maybe Bernie Smith kind of misremembered because of that. Hmm. It, it does seem
3: to me, while we're um, criticizing uh, other people's certainty, it is at least vaguely possible that he could have said the line, right? I mean, we we don't have that uned- unedited right. episode. We know Mrs. Mm-hmm. Story was a Prodigiously childed <laughs> guest, um, right. and we also know that in those ad-libbing moments, if it, if it if it theoretically could have been spoken as an ad-lib, um, Groucho sometimes did that stuff as spontaneous comedians do, with something less than full conscious presence. You know, um, everything's going by quickly, and you're making jokes, and there's maybe it's even, it even kind of makes sense that a joke like that which couldn't possibly have been included in the broadcast, you know, maybe everyone who was present kind of edited it out of (laughs) in advance, knowing like, well, you know, in those unedited episodes, you hear Groucho sometimes make an off color joke. And he starts saying things like clip, 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 like indicating that he knows it's not going to make it to the air.
2: But that, that's the thing, though, isn't it? Is that the, those were saved. I mean, I think it would have ended up on, on one of those reels. And also. It's actually in that
3: date range, isn't it? That Mrs. Story yeah. episode yeah. is conspicuously missing from that set yeah. of unedited episodes.
2: And also it would you know, it would have just got such a laugh, it would have absolutely killed. I cannot think of any good reason why Groucho would have then said, No, I didn't say it. I think it's probably more likely that it was something, you know, that was written by the by the team as a prepared joke that they obviously knew he he couldn't use. Um and, mm -hmm. and it's kind of slipped out that way. Yeah,
1: I think that's about as good an explanation as any. Perhaps they were just kicking it around in the writer's room and had a good laugh, knowing that this would never fly. But they started telling people, oh, you know what? It would have been funny if Groucho had said this. And then somehow it just, you know, took on a life of its own.
2: Yeah. And it got out as kind of he did, but it was cut.
1: Yeah. Now, I hate to go down this road, but I think we're obligated to talk about the fact that You Bet Your Life has been rebooted a couple of times. Uh, A current version is running with Jay Leno and in the past there's one there was been one with Bill Cosby and then one with Buddy Hackett and the 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 thing that they miss here is that they got these guys who are great joke tellers but they're not necessarily quick-witted and great interviewers which is what the show needs they need somebody who's really quick on their feet and, you know and very in the moment so i don't know a lot of people say you oh, know groucho's the only one who could do this the show should never be rebooted and yeah, none of the ones that have been done so far have been really successful. But I just think it's because they haven't found the right host, and it really can be done. Cause it's a it's a nice format for a good personality. You know, David Letterman would have been great in his day, or maybe even today. But you know, I just think producers miss the mark in finding the right host.
2: I think they're just giving themselves an unnecessary burden, really, because the the game isn't. There's nothing particularly good about the game. Right. There's nothing good about the format. So if you're just going to use that title, you're, you're just you're asking for trouble. You're asking exactly. for exactly the reaction it gets. Um, so just just make up a new game, I, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, this latest version, people are going to watch it or not, depending on how they feel about Jay Leno. I mean, the title, You Bet Your Life, really doesn't have any currency these days. So yeah. They might as well call it The Jay Leno Show or Hanging with Jay. And, you know, and if somebody wants to make the comparison to You Bet Your Life. I mean, that's, that's for them to do. I mean, I don't see mm. what value it brings to the show by giving it that title. It's not going to help the ratings at all.
4: Mm. Uh, was Groucho the
3: first major comedian to host a game show? Uh, that may be, um, the, as far as pioneering um, p- part of the legacy of You Bet Your Life, I mean, in, more recently, we've seen people like Howie Mandel um, and Drew Carey, you know, host game shows, not in the same witty, spontaneous, right. conversational way. But the right. idea of making a comedian rather than a George Feneman type, uh, your game show host, uh, is Groucho the first example of that?
4: I don't know.
3: Seems like I can't think of anybody else. Could be. He certainly brought a level of irony to the idea of being a TV host that wasn't there before, and it it seems to me his the Groucho's television legacy is more felt in the late night talk show hosts. Yeah, you know, I mean, you could see a draw a line from Groucho to um, people like Letterman. Stephen Colbert is uh, totally unlike Groucho in manner, but some people have pointed out to me that um, he has the same kind of spontaneity and a, a similar wry detachment. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, it's it's funny that Groucho's biggest job and in some ways his longest held and most famous job was game show host. He, he just doesn't fit the template in any way, nor is oh. he ever
2: described that. way.
1: Anyhow, before we move on here, um, anything else to add before we get on to our special treat? Uh,
2: yes, I'd just like to say uh, congratulations to um, Nick Santamaria, a long-term friend of the podcast, and, uh, and Noel Vaughan, who I met um, for the first time in person last week. Um, he he took her to Switzerland and he proposed marriage to her on the the uh, the steps outside Charlie Chaplin's house while an orge- wow. while an orchestra was playing um, the the theme from Limelight. I, I I personally would have would have gone for something romantic, but that that was what he decided <laughs> on. <laughs> and uh, and she said yes. So congratulations, Nick and Noah. Wonderful.
1: Congratulations, congrats, Nick. That's that's fantastic news. Um, I don't know how to follow that, but I'm going to try. Uh, So, we've been running these uh, Jay Hopkins interviews for the last couple of years. We've been running them. To death. Yeah. (laughs) And we thought we were done with them, and you thought we were done with them. But nope, there is one last interview that's sat in the archives. Now, to come clean, Jay had given this to me a while back and said, You know, Bob, I don't think it's really listenable. I don't think it's audible. You probably can't make it out. Well, I don't recommend you running it. So I took his word for it and never did. But it's an interview with Bernie Smith, the head writer for You Bet Your Life. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to listen to it just so I could get some insight and maybe help prepare for this podcast. And I sat down with it last night and it, it's totally fine. It's a lot of fun. And we're going to run it for you now. It takes place in a restaurant. Jay and Bernie are enjoying a nice meal as they're talking. And you certainly hear the glasses Clanking and dishes, making noises, and waiters serving meals and taking orders and everything. And you know what? It's not. It's fine. It's just atmosphere. Uh, think of it as my dinner with Bernie. Okay. Just close your eyes and imagine you're at the table with them, enjoying a, you know, a bowl of matzo ball soup or something, and just enjoy. It. Okay. Uh, Jay, you have anything to add to this?
4: Well, I'm so delighted that the tape survives in whatever form because it's a rare recorded example of me actually fighting over who's going to pay the check. (laughs) Usually, I don't even offer, you see. Also, I should mention that this was recorded in Hamburger Hamlet, no less. Very exciting. And it was on March 19, 1979. And I think by now, my soup is cold. We'll find out.
8: (laughs) Were a great many of the early cruise shows crooked. I know the sixty-four thousand dollar. The big
7: ones for the big money. Uh, the sixty-four thousand dollar and the sixty-four thousand dollar quest and, uh, challenge. Those were those. Those were the two big ones. Yeah. Uh-huh. They swore to me that they didn't. They were not crooked. I know Ralph story very well. He was the MC on. Uh, on $64,000 challenge. And Al March, who I also used to know before he died, was the MC on the right. uh, $64,000. I think Jack Barry
8: took over.
6: Yeah.
7: Uh, No, he took over on the... Uh,
8: the, the Pyramid?
7: No, the uh, Tic-Tac-Toe one. Uh, oh, gee, I don't know
8: what that is. You know the one I mean.
7: The one that, that the guy got into all
8: the trouble on. Mark... Uh, <laughs> oh, I, it. No. Well, I guess they deserve that sir. Well
7: That's another story Which I'll tell you in a minute <laughs> but, uh, but Ralph and Hal Both swore to me That, that they, were, they There was nothing crooked On those shows However They used to come to us For good contestants yeah that's right uh, there was a jockey particularly named Pierce I can't think of his first name jockey mm-hmm. I think he was either a jockey or a baseball I think he was a jockey Anyway, he had a lot of fun on, on our show, and he made friends with our people. And then when $64,000 uh, was called and said, have you got anybody, we uh, mentioned this guy, and they, so they took him and took him back there.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: And then when he came back here, he told us that they gave him a little book about that thing. And they said the answers to all the questions are somewhere in that book. Really? So that was it. But they never got caught, really. No. Uh, oh, what was the famous one? that uh, Mark Van Doren. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I guess you ready? so.
8: Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Well, I like the um, grilled cheese and bacon deluxe. Okay. And
7: I'm going to add the lobster bisque.
6: The bowl? Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
7: Thanks. Mm, nice. so. like, what the hell was the name of that? Mark Van Doren was the young guy that, uh, that uh, he was the first one that got caught He admitted it, Uh and he was tried. I think he was, I don't know if he ever spent any time in jail or not. Well, it was a tic-tac-tac.
8: I think Marion Polak, Polak mentioned Pollack. Pollock as we on both counts. She mentioned somebody that, uh, as you say, came to your show first and uh, she knew there was something funny that we kept winning on the other show because he just was not that bright. We had a lot of them that
7: came from our show. Well, anyway, the producer of this show that I'm talking about, that was the big one that got in trouble, mm-hmm. was Hyde's brother. Alfred. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) And he used to work on our show. He ran the the teleprompter, or in those days
8: they called it the visualizer, Uh which was a thing that I kind of invented. I I I want to ask you about that because uh, it just seems so astounding to me that the audience could attend his show every week. And still the legend persisted that he didn't have any jokes written. Well, it was all, it was a whole lot of it written, believe me. I know
7: it. But you know there's a um, the machine in a bowling alley that projects the score? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what we use. i i decided that would be great for us. <laughs> and we had it set up. Over the contestant's shoulder, so I'm Graccio. I'm looking at you, you're the contestant, right in back of you, over here, about another ten feet, yeah. is the screen. Uh-huh. It, it, it's at an angle, the audience can't see it, nobody down there can oh. see it, it's all gray and oh, black. Yeah. Nobody knows what it is. Yeah. The operator, a man named Chuck, uh, what the hell was his name? <laughs> I should have a list of credits. This is a long Sounds time ago thanks anyway he was in there all by himself he was on the show from the beginning and groucho never saw him never knew him never didn't even never you knew? wouldn't admit he existed and yet he was the guts of the whole thing uh-huh. so i'm standing behind groucho in the wing with earphones on i'm talking to chuck and controlling groucho through this machine each uh, uh, everything was written I mean as much as we could write on acetate sheets put down here and then it was projected up on the screen so that Groucho looking over the contestant shoulder can read it nice. and then I uh, control Groucho by the speed or whatever I put up on the
8: screen I so get a big kick work. when I watch these prints that I have and seen them several times I can pretty much tell, I think, which jokes are set up because it's He reads terribly when you know him. <laughs> he's yeah. a terrible reader. You yeah. can tell what he's, uh, You can tell
7: the ones he has no confidence in. The ones that he understands sound like the sad lived. Mm-hmm. But I would say of the total show, each week, I would say 80% of it was, with, or was prepared. Really? 80%. Amazing. And then the editing comes in there and, and and we overshot by oh as much as a half hour
8: sometimes, really? Almost hundred percent. So, so how, uh, how long would you say an average show
6: lasted
8: in the studio? In the studio?
7: Yeah. Oh, I would say the average show I would say forty-five minutes. Oh really? throw away 15 minutes I see. that was going to give Russell complete freedom in doing what he wanted to do he was a, he's a genius he had an insight somewhere he would smell something funny or something and then something coming up and he would go after it and he may get nowhere for 3-4 minutes all of which was cut out and thrown away Right. So that when, when you saw it on the air, all you saw was a little bit leading up to it, the answer and the joke. But he would never give up. And uh, that's why we were recorded, and that's why we, Bob Guan, who supervised all the editing,
8: wrote mm-hmm. half of the show after it was all performed. Yeah. It's probably not fair to judge it by the syndicated versions, but the editing is fairly obvious to me. Right? Well, that, that's
7: not fair to judge by the syndicated. You see, they take out another they got two three, or three minutes, minutes right? Yeah. We're allowed on, on network television in those days, I don't know where it is now, in those days we were allowed three minutes per half hour. Mm-hmm. Syndicated, you're allowed six minutes per half that's hour. That's right. So they pick up three minutes. Well, when you very carefully structure a show, editing and putting it together in the original version for, for network broadcast, and then somebody has to come along and take another three minutes off that doesn't have all of the different angles to cut from, to edit from, all he's got is the one master tape film. You know the thing he's got to suffer. He just can do nothing but act. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of the of the cuts are obvious because he has no choice. Right. Another thing that's interesting about the syndicated version, when we did him so many so for so many years our sponsor was DeSoto. And we had a big sign on Gratzett Podium. That's right. I've got a lot of those traditional Oh you have you of those? Yeah. Where'd you get
8: those? They pop up, you know. Um, I brought three of them with. I Did was hoping used? I could show somebody. I don't know if you want to see them. But I've got one from 54, 57, and
7: 60. That's very interesting because the syndicated versions are a lot different.
8: I um. know. When I first saw these from the 60s, I just got them about two weeks ago. I was stunned to see that the podium was an outrageous advertisement. that was it. I don't remember what it was, it was Tony or something, at that time
7: in the 60s, it Tony, so conspicuous. Well, Just this explains what looked like a very bad job of photographing the show. Mm-hmm. If you'll notice, I'm sure you have, so many times on a two-shot the contestants are way over at the edges of the tube, and all you see is just this much, and there's a, all this space in between. Yeah. Or sometimes you'll see the guy, and you'll see Rachel with all you see is his nose. That's right. Well, the reason for that is in the, the only way they could get rid of that Desoto sign was to blow that picture up. Mm-hmm. So they took those negatives of those original shows and blew them up. And blew the sign out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, when two people originally shot, the two people are here. When you blow it up, they go over here. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why it's so strange. It's because it's, it's blown up. One of
8: the shows I have, I watched many times before I saw it on television. It's the one where and, uh, I think John Goodell, um, Bob Guan, and Jack Meek and our called on by Groucho. And... Um, at any rate, there was this contestant who worked in the music industry, and his partner was this gorgeous-looking redhead. And when I saw it on television, it amazed me to, to see that I couldn't even make out the second contestant till about five minutes into the whole interview, because those were all long shots in my print, and you saw something in the background. Yeah, it's too bad, but that's the, way. It's the only way it could be done. Yeah.
7: Of course, it's there's two ways to look at it. I think that the original syndicators, which I think was NBC, they syndicated it first mm-hmm. after it was through the network, and they owned the show, of course. I think they made a mistake in getting rid of that DeSoto sign because they don't make DeSoto sign anymore. Mm-hmm. you know not, you know it wouldn't have been advertising anything you should have left it in
8: but well sometimes at the close of other shows you'll see a CBS I you know filmed at CBS or whatever and they leave that in it, why can't they leave the NBC and the whole bit? It's just so They kind of exaggerate the fact that it's there Because they have this black dot You know, on the mic yeah. And whenever they pan To get rid of something They have to pan without the moves or something The dot pans with the camera And then you see the NBC after all That's stupid It's really
7: laughable That's so mm-hmm. something that Reminded me of something that, took, that makes a very good story <laughs> I can't think what it was. It, we went we it there.
8: I want to ask you too about that show that Groucho had in England. You were involved with that. Anyway. Oh yeah, I was. It. Was it kind It was a terrible. A, was it? Was it a British version of You Bet Your Life? It was. It was practically the same thing.
7: <laughs> Go on and Groucho and I, we'll be reading letter. That's all. Awesome. Uh huh. And uh, I went over first to get the writers organized and the contestants lined up and everything ready. We had all we had sent over three or four copies, prints of our show that we thought were pretty good. That were pretty successful there. Okay. Well, I left here. L.A. at noon and flew over the pole non-stop and got into London at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was just dead and the jet lag really got to Mm me. And it bothered me for two weeks really. When I got there at 6 o'clock in the morning a gal from from, uh, ITV the Independent Television Network the commercial network in London Mm -hmm. was there to meet me with a limousine. And uh, she took me to my uh, apartment, which was a beautiful apartment, right on Grubner Square, across the street from the American Embassy, which is the heart of the West, the heart of Mayfair, with mm-hmm. a gorgeous uh, house, uh, all old furnished with uh, antiques, and, and it was really something. anyway. Thanks. Uh, I said I'm just so damn tired. I, before I get out and meet anybody, I got to go to bed. So I did. I went to bed about when I got up about noon. And I went down to ITV, and over there they have a club right in the in the broadcasting house in the television studio. It's kind of the meeting place of everybody connected with everybody the network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're all drinking beer, of course, and ale and bitters and whatever. Anyway, I go in there at noon and I meet everybody I'm going to work with. And they're all very pleasant. The English people are fabulous. I just love them. They are really great. Always so courteous and so thoughtful. Anyway, we're getting along fine and everybody's very pleasant. And I said, well, I'm sure you're wondering what we're going to do. And I said, we sent over some some copies of the show. Have you seen them? And they all nodded. Yeah. And I said, Well, that's what we're going to do here. Uh-huh. Grotto Britain. Is the name of it. And Not I really? said to uh, one of them, Well, what do you think of it? And this happened to be a girl. <laughs> I'll never forget the look on her face. And she <laughs> just kind of, you know, looked at me kind of funny and looked over to a friend and said, Well, to be honest with you,
8: we couldn't see anything funny about them at all. Oh really? I knew we were in trouble. Mm. Now, whose idea was it to do it? Was it? I uh, was a guy named Elkin Allen. who was a producer a uh,
7: producer of audience participation shows for ITV. Oh. He was a big family guy, and he'd been over in this country. Uh-huh seen our show and he followed the rating history and he knew it was success. And he thought it would go great in England because the Mars Brothers' pictures in England have always been very, very big. They're always playing, they've never stopped playing for 45 years. At
8: least he be that his sense sense of humor is on a par with Hmm? Groucho's. His sense of humor is on a par with Groucho's. Oh, yeah, he understood. The average Englander.
7: Yeah, well. In England, there's two classes. Them that has and them that ain't got it. And them that has don't watch
6: television.
7: <laughs> now we get down to them that ain't got it, all they got is television. And pubs. The men go to the pubs, now we're down to the nitty gritty. We're down to our audience, but there are a bunch of women who don't have any idea what's going on. Oh, boy. All they can understand. If somebody get hit over the head with a rolled up newspaper, or tickled with a feather, a broad, old balesque document, that's all I really understand. Once you get down to their class. Yeah. So, anyway, I knew we were in trouble. I don't know, however, I did the best I could, and I got the, the writers that they had gotten from the who just awful. British writers? Yeah. I said, I won't go over it. I told Negato and Duarte when they first asked me, I said, I won't go uh, unless you promise to get me the best riders in England. Mm-hmm. So, Elkin Allen said he had the best Elkin Allen, incidentally, after our show went off, he got fired by ITV mm-hmm. and he went in and made millions of dollars in porno mm-hmm. flicks. Great. Anyway, so we try, so Juan then comes about a week and a half, two weeks later, and I meet him at the airport, 6 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I throw my arms around him and I say, Bob, get on that airplane and go home, and I'm going to be right with you. Let's go home. We got no business being here. He says, what's the matter? we haven't got a prayer. They don't know what the hell we're doing. They
8: listen to you, huh? He said we're committed, obviously.
7: No. The contract's been over time, we have to do it. Alright, so then ingrats will come, so we go ahead and do it. The first show. The announcer, the Fennaman part, is a guy who was their leading disc jockey. Oh yeah. Over there they call him a compare.
6: <laughs>
7: and so far Rick. cry, far cry from our disc jockeys. This fellow with a very a wonderful legs. man, but very straight, very square.
8: Well, Fittman was a little, too. Wasn't he it? was the square sort of man that ever lived. That's why he was a great foil. I think Groucho said he was square in all four sides. Oh, yeah, he really was. Anyway, our first show. Oh, by the
7: way, this was after, of course, uh, the cruise scandal over here. Uh-huh. And over there... <laughs> They had an outside outfit to make up the quiz questions, But never saw, none of us saw them oh. until they we're on the air. How's he going to know how to pronounce certain
6: things?
7: was a blank to him. And they got a guy with a gun standing here guarding the question, so nobody gets to him until so, actually we're on the air. They get to go, oh, it's terrible Awful. Anyway, this compare is out there warming up the audience. You know, we got out there all we got are a bunch of old ladies because all the husbands are in the pubs. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And this is down at Wembley, which is 25 miles
8: north of England. Yeah. Um. They used to rely on a lot of celebrities, if I remember right, in mm-hmm. England, because they had to get the star appeal rather than the... Re- mm-hmm. You didn't have any You didn't? I thought you did. I guess the thing I'm child at the Growl show. Here we had stars. Yeah, right. But not in England. Not in
7: England. Well, all we had was the best we could have was characters. Mm. So, were the comparers out there warming up the audience for the first show? Now I have told Rocco, he don't understand us at all. The writer, one of the writers that they got from me, was a guy named Brad something. Right,
6: really. who
7: was a a good, good act writer, a good joke writer. He knew all the jokes, old jokes, standard jokes, and he was all right. And he said, uh, I don't want you to feel bad or worry, but if the no American comedian has ever come over here and been a success. Mm. Then he goes down the line.
6: It's funny.
7: All right, so the comparison are there warming up the audience. Gracho and Juan and I are standing in the wing. Gracho's waiting to be introduced. Well, he can't just stand there. Gracho's got to do something. Need a for fun. Well he goes on over in the wings and he gets a bucket of water. And he just walks now uh, you know, they have never seen him without the fake mush and the paper. That's right, yeah. Uh, the cutaway coat. Uh-huh. So he gets this bucket of water and, and Right clear in the back end of the stage, he walks across the stage. Doesn't look out. He's got his cigar in his and He just walks across with this bucket of water. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then he compares out front, talking.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: Nobody recognizes. Not a thief Oh no. Oh, he, he knew right back. He's all oh, right. Quite. He comes back. He gets another bucket, puts some water in it. Now he goes back with two buckets of water, and he walks across the stage. Not a murmur, nothing. He comes back, he puts one of the buckets down, he puts the other one on top of his head, and he holds it and he walks across the stage. Not a peep. And he comes back to me and he says, "We got a problem." Mm. And that was the story of our show in England. Mm. The first show went on the air. You can't believe the reviews. Now there are about thirty dailies in London. Yeah. The British journalist is a terrible person. They really are awful. And they're all looking for the big chance. Uh-huh. They all got their swords off to cut you off. <laughs> it's just awful. Well, so Out I of do. the 30 dailies in London, we got 27 uh-huh. reviews that you want to read. They oh, no. just cut us all of these. The other three were good. They understood what we were doing. Oh.
6: Back.
7: Well, that was about time that I left. My family came over and I took the family and I went on the rest of the
8: winter. I was Europe for a couple uh-huh. of weeks and came on. Is that a sudden decision due to their reaction? Yeah. How long did that last? what you said? Thirteen Thirteen Why would you guess that Tal de Groucho also did not really go anyplace? Just because of overexposure? Well, after you bet your life, right, had
7: reached the end of fourteen years on the
6: earth. They were
7: having trouble getting money. They could have no trouble selling it, but they go by rating points at Harvard. And the higher the rating, you know, the more money they get. And they were getting, uh, they, they said the demographic breakdown was uh, when we had a lot of old people. Well, they, they think old people don't have any money, but they're the ones that have the money, really. Anyway, NBC was very uh, reluctant.
8: Did you can tell by the commercials. Who the audience is.
6: Yeah,
7: you can't always tell. Selling Geritol and everything else. That's right. That's correct, that's cool. So NBC says, well, we've come to the party of the way, so well, you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm.
8: So CBS. They're, uh, they're were always ready, right, because they lost their chance back in 1950.
7: So. Goodell's main function with the show was really just sell it and keep it sold. Mm-hmm.
8: He was seldom
7: actually there during. The... Oh, yeah, he was there for every show. He was? Oh, yeah. Well, oh. yeah, he was standing there next to me. All he ever did was <laughs> decide what question to ask him, the big question. I had a list of about five mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. Questions. I see. That's he ever did. But he went out after NBC dropped it. And CBS said, We will buy it if you can make a different show out of it. Hmm. So the only thing I could think of... We had done a... Goodell and I had done a little pilot one time for a uh, 15-minute radio commentary show with Rudy Valley, where celebrities in Hollywood had a chance to talk back to critics. Mm. Critic can tear a show or... a celebrity or an actor completely to ribbons and he has no recourse he's no right. way he can answer so we were going to give him a platform with this rudy valley thing that never developed so i said to john let's do that for crowd show and that's why we call tell us the show us anybody that has something to say a beef of some kind nobody will listen to come and tell us the show that was the premise I've so got a friend of the show.
8: Mm-hmm. So got a friend of the and, show. The CBS. And it opens by the um, announcer saying, from all over America, people are traveling across the country to tell it to Groucho. And they have this map of the United States hmm? behind mm-hmm. Groucho. Well, that was the idea
7: that we had. It just didn't work. People didn't have enough to say. They didn't have nothing they wanted to tell us. People would complain. That's surprising. To, well, people with complaints were either complaining about their health or taxes, money, or things that there was no humor in it. I was, when we greened this up, we thought that we could get somebody who was having an argument with the next-door neighbor, and we could get the two of them there and, you know, have some fun, but it didn't work that much. So that lasted for 20 shows on CBS. That was the end of that. Right. And then after that,
8: it we came, we came. Well, that's was a long time.
6: Well, I don't know if any
8: show that ever lasted any longer than 14 or 15 years. Except maybe, well, it's there Sullivan. were two of them that did since.
7: When we went off, we were held the record. Uh-huh. Uh, it. of Sullivan went on for 20, 20 years. Letter's house party for daytime shows went on for 25 years. Oh, really? Radio and television.
8: Also produced by Goodell.
7: <coughs> and then the other one was, I think Gunsmoke went for, uh, oh. I think they went for about 40 years. But aside from that, nobody else has done it. Did
8: show ever have any specific guests that he wanted on his show? I know Harry Ruby appeared on it but outside
7: of him I don't know Harry Ruby on. and his daughter excuse me
8: Miss Melinda, Melinda oh yeah Grouchel's
7: daughter yeah. and uh, I think that's all Harpo had a book out and he wanted Harpo to come on and plug the book mm-hmm. so Harpo came on for two seconds i got a copy of that particular
8: portion and Oh, have you? With Harpo on Yeah. Oh, I was really lucky to get it because I knew the guy that controlled the syndication locally. At any rate, um, it appears in watching it that Groucho is actually surprised when Harpo comes out, but he, he must have arranged it. Oh, yeah. Groucho looks surprised no matter who comes out, but you know that he's got to know who it is. Yeah.
7: Yeah,
8: Harper was there for a few you know, He was a lovely man. Everybody yeah. liked Harper. Uh-huh. Well, he comes out and um, I think he hands Groucho the book and then he, he does something to the lady contestant, and then he walks off. And it's kind of disappointing because you think that's it. You know, he's only on for 15 seconds. But luckily, then he comes out after the male contestant comes out and hands him the leg, and then he grabs Feniman and then starts laughing at his own book. And for that part well, of the show... There's much you can do with a guy that doesn't That's right. But you didn't devise anything specific for them to do, right? Not in his case,
7: but all the rest of it was off for right. Anytime anybody performed, uh-huh. we had to know. Had to pick that.
8: You might not remember this, but I've got to ask you something about the Harry Ruby show.
7: He, went on two or
8: three times. he was! Oh, yeah. oh, I didn't know that. Well, I've only seen the one, I think it was 1956, where he and Groucho sing the Window Cleaner song. Yeah. And right before that, I think Harry says, Groucho, I'll play a few of my songs. And the only song that we hear him sing is uh, Three Little Words. Now, that must have been edited.
6: He uh, must I have
8: ran through several songs. Yeah. I think just You know it? Oh, no. I no? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sure it was. That, that I don't remember. Something right. like that. Well, they just did...
7: Uh, no, I don't know if it was on that show, but on some show, they did... Uh, there's a town called Omaha, Nebraska. Really? Yeah, because they heard, wrote that. You heard that? Yeah. I have heard the song. Groucho and, and Ruby wrote Yeah, I know. A town called Woman on a Groucho in the city of Tennessee. Uh, they did that. No, this was, this was either on that show or another show, but it got on the air, so it wouldn't have been that show.
6: Thank you very much.
7: Then he did, uh, the two of them did. Did the uh, No. I would really. uh Another one that, that Groucho and Ruby wrote called uh, Father's Day. That's right. Today it's Father's Day, and we're giving him yes. a sigh. Croucho and Ruby did that. And uh-huh. they sang it.
8: Uh-huh.
7: Now, in the one you saw, it's possible that that's, uh, that's the stuff that was cut out. I don't know. But if he was just sitting there playing, and then I wrote, and then I wrote, that doesn't make sense. I, well, you was on that know, a few times, so. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. Huh? He's another wonderful man. I loved her. Yeah, I would have loved him that time.
8: Yeah, real nice man. Um, did Harpo and Shickle um... um work as um, audience warmers yeah I knew with anybody oh really I thought oh, they came no. on they yeah, yeah. were on some commercials
7: I know yeah well that's a funny story yeah Um, uh, Harpo saved his money <laughs> and he was very <laughs> wealthy and up. lived in a beautiful big home in Palm Springs he had four children all adopted uh-huh. they are all wonderful
6: kids
7: but, but he's uh, he he uh, went up to Canada and made one commercial. In Canada, one time. He comes back to the unemployment office in Palmer. Oh yeah. You heard this story? The true story. <laughs> And he applied for his unemployment insurance. And the guy behind the counter says, You write his name your name? Mr. Mark. He says, uh, When did you last work? He says, uh, Three months ago. And he says, Well, how much were you paid for it? And he says, uh, $14,000. And the guy looked at him and he said, Well, how long is it working? He said, One day. And he said, You got paid $14,000. Know, he gives up and he goes and gets the bond. Uh-huh. Then uh, another guy that was very, very important to the show and has really been short sheeted on all of the books about it yeah. is Ed Mills. You familiar with his name? Mm-hmm. Well, Eddie really was in charge of all the contestants. He got it. Got most of the good contestants. Mm-hmm. Marion did too. Rich Alder. But Eddie was—he was the best. He was Johnny Del's brother. Oh. But on the on this show, uh, when we started, Eddie uh, would pretend he was the janitor, and he'd come out with white overalls on and a bucket of water and a broom. Bob was talking. And I can't remember what they did. They did something to show that there was actually water in the bucket.
6: Uh-huh.
7: So then they, they get into an argument, and Groucho starts chasing Eddie, and Eddie's got the, the bucket of water, and they run through the audience. Groucho chasing Eddie, and they run back on the stage, duck behind the wing for a second, and they change buckets. And, and Groucho picks up the other one.
6: Uh-huh.
7: Which has just got confetti in it. Yeah, right. And, it, and then he throws it out in the audience. Uh-huh. So we had all that stuff going on. <laughs> balls well, after two or three shows, we said, we don't need this. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that it's was the end of that. So there. then Groucho yeah. would go out and talk a little bit. Yeah
8: that's all we had. He used to talk about Melinda
7: and get a little sympathy. Yeah, and show business, and uh, he always had one joke that he told. He'd say, you know, people are such snobs about humor and jokes. You'd say, uh, there actually aren't very many jokes. There are
2: new versions
7: of them. And he says, uh, anyway, if a joke is a good joke and you've heard it before, there's no reason you can't laugh at it again. He says, uh, "He says you're going to hear a lot of old jokes on this show. Tonight. I hope you like them. I hope you like He says, for example, I'm sure you've heard this story, and you tell it about it. He says, uh, the fat woman goes in the, the pharmacy, and she asks for 10 cents worth of chafing powder. And uh, the clerk says, uh, yes, ma'am, walk this way. She says, if I could walk that way, I wouldn't need the chafing powder. Well, that was the, he told that every week for 15 years. Oh. And he says, now that's an old joke. Uh-uh. So many of you heard it before, a few years ago. He says, that's a, the general reason why he came out with that. <laughs> that was always a staple. That me. show had one of the best
8: audiences
7: of any think. Somebody told me that the other day. Somebody said, I'd give a million dollars to have some, uh, some footage of just that audience with the, with the short haircuts and the style of dressing, and the, the intelligence on the faces. Yeah, It was a good audience. It
8: really was. But as far as understanding Groucho, I mean, I I mean he would have little mannerisms or subtle jokes that I wouldn't think everyone would catch, but there's always a hall yeah, in the they, audience.
7: they were, they were pretty they good.
8: And that was taped, what, Wednesday at the... Uh,
7: uh, no, it was, uh, we taped it the same time the show was on the air, on Thursday nights. Oh, really? I think so, we did, and we did most of the time, we not at first, huh. to give the feeling that it was live, you know.
8: Do you remember the Australian twins? And they came on, and uh, they had a bullwhip, I guess, and that's one of the funniest shows I ever saw. Really? Did you like them? And I, I, really I loved that it, because that. he... He tried Fenneman out and he said, George, George, all you said was a blue cross, George. And yeah. George thought they were going to whip this cigarette out of his yeah. mouth. And finally Groucher relented and they did it to themselves. But in listening to the radio version of that particular show, that whole routine is cut. Oh, yeah, it's a very visual thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what were they? were the twins. That's right. Oh, I remember that. And they came, they came over from Australia, and Groucho said, what are you doing here? And one of them said, well, we thought we could get into pictures. And Groucho said, "Well, the latest show at the Panantages that I said, <laughs> I love that show. Uh, yeah, I can't
7: think of their name. Oh. Yeah, I remember that very well. Well, all of that kind of stuff we set up. In, in writing the show, uh, you have, always have to remember that part of the writing was what the contestant said, you know. Now, if I sat down, if we were live on the air, and I, I'm you and I'm going to interview you, I don't know what you've got to say on how you met your wife. It may be the smallest yeah. half hour in the history of radio. Right. And I don't know what you do in your work. I don't know anything about it. So if I just take pot luck, we're not going to get anywhere. I may get a few last, but if I, by and large, it's going to be pretty tough. So we just saved him all that trouble. We did it for him. By the time he got the thing, it was all fair, down. He knew when he asked, how did you meet your wife or anything like that, he knew something was going to happen. And generally, he knew everything they had to say because I was tell him before at the meeting at his house. That's right. So the writing had to be uh, in, done in such a way that the listener didn't suspect that this was prepared. Uh-huh. It had to, you know, it couldn't come out of left field. Couldn't be it Couldn't say. Uh, uh, that's a beautiful ring on your finger and the woman said yeah that's a you know 25 caratine and so forth uh, that he would never have asked it if he didn't know oh right so Uh so we had to write it so that it didn't come out of left field so Uh that he would be talking about his ring and lead into it so you'd never suspect uh, and that that was a very
8: delicate bit of writing that yeah. we developed. So, so. You knew Groucho so well too; it was pretty easy, i match mean, three to set these things up. And you remember Saya Argovich? He's a bald little man. I think he's a shoe salesman or something. And he came on with Margaret Nicholson, who was one of the Mrs. Miss Housing Development uh, contestants. Yeah, I hated that old series. that was on CBS. Was it? No, I think that was was later years years? of, you bet your life. I think that was during the Groucho show. Must have been the last season. That's right. Yeah. I remember the... uh, It's very shabby, It's terrible. But anyway, um, Sayagovic, I realized from seeing pictures of him on other shows, his big claim to fame, I think, was stuffing about 50 cigars in his mouth yeah. and smoking them at one time. But he doesn't do this on You Bet Your Life. It well, was out. He did it on the show. That's what I was yeah. wondering about. It just didn't go over real. Well. And there's also uh, something funny about that show. Groucho gets in a personal insult, guess you could call it. Against Sai, he says Sai you ought to be a perfect shoe salesman because when you're fitting the lady's shoes they can be powdering their nose by looking at the top of your head. And I suspect that he must have been told that he was going to say that because it's that kind of a joke where, you know, don't don't be offended if the outro says this. Oh yeah,
7: we went over everything with him. And he, and he, could have
8: and he had an immediate comeback, uh, or rather a setup. Groucho immediately followed that with, You um, you must know quite a bit about the uh, footwear front. Tell us, Sai, what's the hardest things in women's shoes nowadays. And Sai says, uh, "Well, Groucho, the hardest things in in women's shoes today, I think must be Bridget Bardot. And then he has a smug look on his face. And you know that was said. Yeah, in all
7: probability, that was his joke
8: you think so? Oh, yeah.
7: Yeah, we would never we would never give anybody a joke. But it seemed like Groucho fed him the line. Oh, yeah. that It was set up. Uh-huh. We knew he was going to say it, but it was something that, that was part of him.
8: I see.
7: You see. We would never give anybody a joke like that, because you don't know what they'd do with it. Uh-huh. It would sound like we told him to say it. No, we never. We didn't make up anything, we, everything people said was their own stuff. All we did was pare it down. we go over the interview with them in, in uh, rehearsal for a long time. we go over everything. Mm-hmm. They said, well, now going to say this. We wouldn't tell him about the joke. But when uh, Gratio says, uh, I'm your husband, this is what you told us, and this is what we want you to uh-huh. stick with.
8: I've got to ask you about one other joke. It's... Um it's this woman who's got a very tight dress on. She's very shapely. And I'm just wondering if, if this is actually true. what she said. She said her father was a meat distributor. And Chris Groucho came up with, your father is a meat distributor? Well, if you're in the indication, he certainly knows his business. Was her father a meat distributor, or was that just a I think uh,
7: in all probability he was. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we, we wouldn't make up a thing like that. Now, sometimes the writers would try to fool me, and they would do it. Oh, uh-huh. Uh, and they would make it up. She might have told the writer, originally, my father was a meat wholesaler. Oh. And they said, well, what does he do? Well, he distributes meat. Well, then they would say, well, this father will be distributed. And I didn't know that. I would be after him all the time. I'd say, look, when you guys give me back a script, okay. it's got to be honest. I've got to, to, to rely on you. Because if it isn't, it's going to sound fake. And uh-huh. I don't want to be in that position. I want to give Rachel the truth. And, and so they were pretty good about it. But something like that, it's possible they may have put one over So
8: on. even the set-up jokes had a uh, tie-in with the actual person. Oh, right. yeah. Any,
7: anything set up was all based on what they told based us. Truth. We didn't make up anything. Uh-huh. We couldn't, you, you could tell when they, you know, you, you just couldn't take that chance. They uh-huh. were... Oh, uh, I remember the, one of the funniest things, the biggest laugh Groucho ever got, and he very seldom laughed. I asked him one uh-huh. time, I said, why don't you laugh? And he says, I'm not up there to enjoy it and laugh. I'm up there to make the audience laugh. Yeah. So he didn't laugh. Well, anyway, this one was a case, and I don't know whether it was in the book or not. Where There's had mention going, of a laugh. Uh,
8: it may be the same one, but... Well,
7: we had this woman... Uh, who was a, a kind of a, what we used to call a professional contestant. We'd, we'd go to all of the shows. Yeah. But in her case, I don't think she did, but she could have. She was that kind of a brassy dame and she had some fairly funny stuff and so we go over the thing with her uh, with, with everything you could anticipate and she knew what was coming and she had some funny stuff to say too well when it gets on the air and Graccio being Graccio, he starts ad-libbing all over the place and he would ask her something and she'd start to answer and he'd go on and try to make the joke and right in the middle of it she got mad and she says Graccio, you're stepping on my line and he just, he just broke, broke up. up, and he turned around.
8: said you were cracking back. <laughs> I didn't see that show, but there's another one with uh, Prince Ross. Do uh, you remember that guy, yeah. the African Prince? Yeah. And there was a black Ethiopian, Ethiopian and yeah. his partner was a uh, housewife from Chicago, and yeah. she was black. And oh, she she was had, she, yeah, she really was. Um, I think her name was Mrs. Madeline Dudley. Yeah, yeah, But is. um, a chicken She said, it's poop. That's right, oh, so and he just broke up. Yeah, it yeah was that was great. Really nice. That was a wonderful show. Yeah. That was one of those that was broken up. Yeah, there was just so much we couldn't keep And, it and he it. says, uh, I was wondering about that, when they break up a show and the contestants come out a second time, and is that all filmed after the complete interview? Um, uh, we do two shows. Lot, no, oh, really, they time. do come back. We always second, did two shows else. a night anyway. Oh,
7: yeah. And and uh, where we knew it was going to be bar offs like that, and we would we would plan on it and break it, and all, it was all planned. And the contestants would bring a change of costume, and then we'd come on do the second show and they'd finish it. So it was all done in one day but it was actually broken. See,
8: yeah. I thought it was all one one taping, one show, and then they just had them come out a second time. And kind of
7: Sometimes that happened where where it it just got out of control and got funnier than we anticipated. But that was really kind of rare. We, we knew most of the time what we wanted. Yeah.
8: Sometimes Groucho's kind of stumbling over the introduction. He says, uh, welcome back, you were hearing last week and we have a different secret word this week oh I week. used to be
7: so embarrassed because he, he just could not read lines he <laughs> was just awful with that kind of stuff uh huh and he always sounded the same uh say the secret word and uh went on oh. I would just indicate that I wanted him to say that in his own wo- words every week because uh-huh. I couldn't write it different every week
8: it, it also seemed that George was so concerned about getting the rules for the contestants, especially when they had, you know, the different uh, category questions, he would yeah. say, Well, you have $200 yeah. and two more chances to make five. It, it seemed as if he was really concerned about staying. Well, he wanted
7: everybody position. to completely understand yeah. what was going on.
8: Yeah. George is
7: uh, uh, one of the spokesmen for. Uh, Home Savior. That's right. right. Yeah, I saw one. You saw him? Uh, Harry Bonzell has been with him for years. Is
8: Harry year. alive? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I love Harry because I've got several Burns and Allen TV shows, oh, and, and he's it. on those. Yeah, Harry Harry
7: was with home for, oh, uh, I guess, 20 years, 25 years, and he's getting along in years, and it was his idea to get George.
8: Oh, really? And uh, Harry's still on a lot of uh, Is he living in Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah. I can't find his number. Ah, I know. Uh, I don't. uh, I'll tell you how you can find him. Call
7: Lakeside Golf Club during the day. Lakeside Golf Club. Harry's over there playing gin (laughs) all the
8: time. Great. Sounds like George. Oh, George would be playing gin. George,
7: he's a strange guy. He really is. It's really busy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so. that's how you can get Harry. Lakeside yeah, like Great. And ask them, ask him to pay out. Uh-huh. And if he's anywhere, he'll be there.
8: Unless he's Or unless he's sick or something. I haven't heard of him. Yet. Do you have any interest in seeing these shows that I rocked? No, yeah. No seen them all so yeah, I know
7: that yeah. uh, I, I, get, I, I get I uh, get kind of feeling uh, depressed when I because yeah. everybody's so much older and a lot of them are gone
6: mm-hmm.
7: and uh, uh, well it's, oh, I don't I don't really like to see them I had them all you know I saved them you did, you did. when we broke up we d- we filmed the show through an outfit called Gumcraft. Uh, That's right. And uh, they had a little place over here, a little uh, studio over here on the uh, Melrose, mm-hmm. And uh, after the the original prints went out to the network, there were three, I think, it was in New York, Chicago, and L.A. Mm-hmm. They were always sent back here. I think New York might have kept theirs for a while. At any rate, they got them, and they were just, they piled them up out there in the studio, in the uh, hangar. So when we went out of business, Juan says, we got all these prints over there, and I don't know what to do with them. I ain't know where I can keep them. I don't know if anybody's ever going to want them, and they were going to throw them away. Yeah. Well, at that time, I had a house, I had a full acre that had been built for originally for Cedric Cardinal, the English oh, actor. Really? You
8: know?
7: Yeah. And then another guy came along, uh, a famous piano player. Oh. I can't remember Not Liberace. Not, hmm? Liberace? Not Liberace. No, 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 it was long before Liberace. This, I think it was World Father yeah. Heinz. him, but somebody like him. Uh-huh. And he was a glider enthusiast. Uh-huh. And he built a building out there, 25 by 75 beautiful concrete so I had lots of room it was a a big hangar like Mm -hmm. so I took all no I took about uh, 350 or 400 prints and stored them there in the shed that I had I didn't know what I was going to do but there they were so then uh, two things happened NBC said we're going to Sell it for syndication, mm-hmm. will you send us the following... No, at the first they wrote and they said, what uh, 262 shows, which are the five days a week for one year, what 262 shows do you recommend you, to me? Uh-huh. So I picked out the ones we had, and I recommended about, uh, actually about 300. That must be quite a job. Well, I knew. I See, in mean, my records, I had graded every show. Oh, yeah, I knew see. I was very familiar with I every see. show. I so uh, then they said, well, will you send us those? So I sent those prints about 300 prints back there. Now, I've still got another 200. I don't know how many really? television shows we made. I've forgotten now, but I, I
8: know I still had enough for... Does that audition film, that the film that CBS exists... No. Oh, that's too bad. I know the tape... I have the, uh, the recording of the radio. Audio. That's or right. you heard that, I guess. Yeah,
7: I've heard most of it. That yeah. was where Gratio was trying to be a real fat...
6: I, I did know, did I did did
7: know. Did. That's the way he always terrible. was in those early shows. Sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... That's now, the, 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 now, at the same time, they're talking about building a Hollywood museum out here.
6: Mm-hmm.
7: And they... Uh, they had a, uh, we were going to put it over on one of the parking is at Hollywood Bowl. And the city of LA County gave them the ground. There was one guy who had a house up there and he wouldn't give in. And they had a big fight over that and a big suit. Well, it happened. If that was Marion Pollock's ex husband. <laughs> she should have got the money that that guy got for that house because they had adopted a child.
8: Uh-huh.
7: And she had no support from that old man. Oh, really? Anyway, so when they decided to build the Hollywood Museum, uh, they started collecting stuff. So I gave them the rest of the prints that I had. I see. And they are all sitting now in a vault somewhere. I don't know, in a county vault somewhere.
6: Really? Huh.
7: Then, Not uh... You don't let him go to waste. Then we had a guy, a writer, uh, when we started the show, named Ed Tyler. Doc Tyler. You know Ed Tyler, the doctor.
6: Yeah,
8: that's right. Well, I had a fire him. Really?
7: Yeah, because he made me mad on several counts. Uh... But the real reason I got mad is he was trying to, to promote loot. And at that time it was legal. You could do, if you mentioned Cadillac and they gave you a car, well, okay, you could have it. But well, today you do that and you go to jail. Yeah.
6: But in those days it
7: was legal.
8: Huh.
7: So Tyler was always trying to work things into the script or trying to get me to leave things in.
8: I know Penny used to do that quite a bit. Yeah, oh
7: well, that's another story in itself. Yeah. So uh, that always made me mad about Tyler doing that. Well, then he got together with I one day, and they were going to go on strike for more money. And I could see him was the night we were doing the show, and they were down at on one end of the hall. And I could see their heads together. And poor I is the sweetest guy in the world. He'll do anything like a big puppy. He'll do anything you ask him to. <laughs> Well, I knew Tyler was responsible for it, and he said, poor I. He comes trotting down, and they, they wanted more money. And Goodell was standing there, and he turned to me, and I said, "Can't give it to We got it in the budget."
8: And Goodell
7: was mad, and he had a pencil, and he broke the pencil. Don't get upset. So, I said, as soon as I had gone back, I said to, to Goodell, I said, "We got to get rid of Tyler. And we have to let him go." And I, said, well, I don't like the way he's doing these so we did and that was where Howard Harris came into it oh yeah well Tyler of course got very angry about the treatment we gave him so then when we uh, got down to to re-releasing the shows and syndication, uh, Tyler was gonna this is my chance to get even with you guys and he would not agree to, with NBC on contracts he wouldn't give his permission for anything he was involved with but fortunately we had let him go right in the middle of the television series so that I counted up and we had our two hundred and fifty thousand shows enough for one year which is all NBC wanted I
8: see and I said
7: to the lawyer at NBC Graham is, I guess still there. I said, well, call Tyler and tell him we so, don't need him. We got him around. Well, that little decision cost Ed Tyler over $150. Oh, dollars. God. So we'll never see those shows. We'll never see those shows. Well, they might. But I think they threw the, the negative the away.
8: That's too
7: bad. Well, there was the, the greatest show we ever did was included in there. Gonzalez Seconds, Gonzalez. I was, I've
8: never seen the show, but I've seen a clip from it. That was well, years
7: 50, uh, 50 good I don't know what you can do about it. You might want to talk to him while you're out. He's a oh, cute guy. He lives out here. Alice. Yeah, I've got his phone number in the office. Oh, really? And they gave him a, a print of the show.
8: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Well, he was in there, and there were several other really, really good ones. But, Alice, or uh, who was the female that was so funny? That, Begnavik or... Badovnik.
7: Badovnik. Yeah, I guess she was tired kind of, Oh, she was on three or four times. Mrs. Badovnik, yeah. Oh, yeah, she was... Uh, she came from Badovnik, Czechoslovakia. She right. was married to a guy named Badovnik. He yeah. left her and she married another guy named Badovnik. Confusing. She was a funny old lady. Yeah, so there were several good shows yeah. in that. but we just.
8: Would it be possible it? to... Print up the records you have of the show. Oh no, that would be a little bit. because
6: 'cause
8: I've been relying on what I found in TV Guide, and you know they don't list everything, especially that show. If a celebrity appeared on uh, the show, they would, but otherwise. I'll be great. glad to let you uh, have you
7: come over to the house and look through it. Uh, make any notes you want.
1: What you man?
8: Uh, I would love to do that. Uh, yeah. Because I wrote John Goodell about that, and he didn't have any records. Yeah, nobody has any records. NBC doesn't
7: uh, my records are for every show, but uh, unfortunately the first shows, the radio shows, the first maybe 50 shows I would just say uh, About the right. Bees or How or the reasons they were picked not, not the names. No, I didn't have the names or the identities that's in the master one that has been since been lost but all I had was the reason they were picked Like we would, uh, we were trying to be honest when we started the show uh, and we would go through the audience before in the warm up and we would listen to people who so say that and everyone and how they met the husband. So we would listen to them. And then we would pick the two bests and bring them up on stage, and the gentlemen would have a uh, little game that they played, and we let the audience pick the one that went on the show.
6: Oh, I see.
7: And we did that with everybody except the few invited guests that we had, which were very few. Most of them were picked that way. Well, I very quickly realized that we were losing an awful lot of good stuff, so I decided uh, well, i we really just go find our own,
8: interview them, and find that material. Yes. But there's the there's never anyone from that that said they were a great fan of Groucho's and they wanted to come on, is there?
7: Oh, yeah. But uh, there was nothing funny in that,
8: and Groucho would be at ease with them. It kind of annoys me when I see a fan club president mm-hmm. on there, and I'm thinking, gee, if only I could have gone on a show, you know, here I am. There
7: team. were other fan clubs. The only other one that I remember was the uh, Gordon McRae fan club.
8: I've got that show, Have it's, it's
7: really funny that you right. mentioned it. Well, cool. well, the only reason that's on earth is because he's a good friend of mine. Oh. And uh-huh. I thought, well, I'll give him a little plug, uh-huh. and I got the girls. Yeah. It was kind of funny. Yeah.
8: But but I don't I remember... I uh, Elvis' fan club was mm-hmm. on. Who? That was Presley. Well, not that well, I knew. Well, there's a middle-aged woman, I think, and she was a she member of There it. could be. So that was it when John... Be. Charles Thomas is on and they had that big debate about, you know, rock and Yeah, that's right. I don't think I'd say that I have anything. Well, your later records do have the names, don't they? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, most of the the television shows are a degree. If I could only see that I'd really appreciate it. (laughs) Well maybe I could call you later. Tonight I'm going go to go down to the beach for a couple of days at
7: the end of the week, and I'm know? I mean, going to be go to have to go to I, Chattanooga. I hope oh. we hit Cincinnati. Uh, so Sorry. it would have to be uh, I hope
8: we hit Detroit. tonight or tomorrow night, or Wednesday night.
7: Uh-huh. Any one of the three nights, I as far as I know, will <laughs> Now, we may go out for dinner, on any but when we do, we're home by 8.30 <laughs> or eight <8:30. laughs> uh, i do it. What would you suggest? Call me. Call on that same number.
8: Call me about six o'clock. Six thirty. Uh-huh. And uh I've gotta go back to Anaheim today. I suspect i will be back by then. Well, why, why, don't, you, why don't you make it tomorrow
7: night? Tomorrow night? Yeah. I got an idea where my wife's going to want to go out okay. okay.
8: Uh, uh yeah. That would be just great. I didn't think anything existed. I, you know? I'm, we're working on this television credit thing, and you bet your life is such a big part of their output that getting a list like that would be wonderful. Well, it's not
7: after yeah. all, we made over well, 600 that's shows. That's taken to so,
8: that, you know, yeah. in the same way that... Uh, well, it's a big time, right? It's not serious. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. So Maybe I could Xerox right. it rather than... Yeah. Like,
7: no. Oh, you might be Somehow able to. A lot, a lot of it is it's just it's kind of fake pencils. Look, look, look at it. Okay. Zeroes, now, there's syndicators there. Because it's syndicated. It's a syndication, he he took into the He did. And uh, he, that was how he built his
2: show.
8: Oh. Set I wrote to, to, to the syndicator to the and it seemed they didn't have any guest credits at all. Oh he didn't know anything. All he had was They the indicated that T V Guide and had it, yeah, but yeah. it, but they wouldn't I relinquish anything day. like that. I guess it's tied up in their computer or something. No, well you're welcome to look at mine. That's wonderful. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. No, leave a chip. Let me take care of the chip. No, 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 no. no, no. Come on. It's a great privilege just to talk to you like that. I well, know, it's interesting to so, say, you know, what I've been feeling is that... I gotta sit here. This is an example of kind of Do you there find that a there are very movie, many people, somewhere. you know, like me yeah, that write to you about place. that show? Very <laughs> few. <laughs> well, in other words, it's like, yeah. you guys
7: are unique, used to me. Go out i my mean, it's it's like Very here. kind, kind of meet me No, there uh, obviously there are a lot of people that like love the show. Let's shows, use our next 30 days no, after the 11th for next month. Let's just um, say like i 11th. I can't think of, there's, there's a couple other clubs that I
8: can't, can't. read where they yeah. are Can I ask you to you sign this book? I love it over here. do. you say All
7: you know, I have this picture. Yeah, I know well, that, that. used to hang on my wall.
8: Oh, really? That's all one thing. Yeah, so it's
7: and 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 montage. Yes. I had it made myself. Oh, really? And it's the original picture that's in my garage. Let me tell you. It's about, about the size that. of that door.
0: The Marx Brothers Council Podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gasell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at marxbrotherscouncilpodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter, And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council
6: Facebook group. See you next time.